Oh, my God. Oh, I, I know you from, like, TV, man. Oh, well, yes. Thank you. You've seen me on my, uh... Yeah, yeah, on that, on that cowboy show. Yeah. Oh, my God. You have a British accent? My dear fellow, I, I do indeed. Oh, my God. You, your American accent on TV is so good. Why, thank you. Why, thank you. It's, it, you know, it's all part of the trade. Oh, I, I, I know. I just, this is... I've only been on a few auditions so far, so to meet someone as, as big as you waiting on an audition, I, it's, it's very exciting for me. Well, of course, young fellow, I completely understand. Hey, do, would you mind if I asked you, like, some, some actor questions? Like, because... Why, of course, dear fellow. Please, chap. What do you, what do you need help with? Well, okay, so, um, like, like, uh, of course, I'm, I'm reading all the, all the books, you know, like, uh, learning all the different acting techniques and stuff, and taking classes, uh, but, you know, I just, I can't seem to master crying on command, like, uh, like, I've been doing, doing all the Stanislavski stuff, where I try to think of these sad memories, and they, in hopes that remembering that will bring, like, a tear to my eye, you know how it is? So, like, uh, do you know, have any, like, secret techniques for, like, how you get a, emotional on, on camera or stage that I, a young actor like myself could really use? My dear fellow, I do indeed. It's actually quite simple. Oh, yeah, 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 what, what, what is it? What is it? Right before I go on stage or before I'm about to have a dramatic camera shoot, I just reach into my nose and yank out a bunch of nose hairs. Tears me right up. You, uh, you, you just, you just yank out your nose hairs? Oh, yeah, yank them right out. And that, that works? Oh, yeah, no, tears, every time. If it's really sad, you yank out a bunch of them all at once. Uh, okay, I'll, I'll try to remember that. Good luck on your audition, chap. Have fun. Oh, okay. I guess, I guess I'm next. Welcome to the show. Uh, so yeah, hit the button when you're ready. There. I've got it, man. All right, hello everyone, and welcome back to uh, Ruben Uncut. Uh, welcome, welcome me back to the to the show today, friend of the podcast, Dean Kutris. Welcome to the show, sir. Thank you, thank you. Glad to be back. So, uh, before we get into today's main topic, might as well just rehash the conversation we had off camera, <laughs> which is that I I took a disturbing poll from the. Halcyon Company today, uh, where they asked, "Whose leadership do we need the most today?" And the first, and the options were Elon Musk, the Pope, and Joe Biden. And uh, Elon Musk currently has two thousand seven hundred eighty-one votes. Joe Biden has three hundred sixty-eight, and the Pope has two hundred forty-five. Wow! I mean, that's not even—that's a large lead. Yeah, no, it, uh, part of me wonders if, like, if, like, you know, Tesla employees were required to take this poll. Uh, <laughs> well, they couldn't do it while they were working remotely. 
Because <laughs> yeah. evidently Elon Musk is not a fan of remote work. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I feel like a lot of the work his company does could probably be remote. A lot of work a lot of companies do can be remote, and they're finding oh, yeah. that out. And, you know, I, it's, it's, it's really incredible. Um, At some so. point, companies will realize it will cost less buildings. It'll cost less money to live in smaller buildings, to work in smaller buildings. They'll yeah. be like, yeah, everybody, work from home. <laughs> you're you're basically, you're, 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 and, and what they're basically doing is they're uh, pushing the cost of maintaining a building down to the employees, mm-hmm. which, you know, if corporate America figures out a way, finally figures that out and just be like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. This will save us money. This will be good. We can, we can own a smaller office. Smaller office. That's, uh, I don't know, maybe not in a city center or something like that, that it doesn't, uh, take up a lot of energy that doesn't, you know, uh, use a lot of air conditioning and electricity and, you know, so, so I will just say I am alarmed by how much Elon Musk is winning. But now, to be fair, no, it's not like there's a hundred thousand votes in this thing or anything. It's, it's less, it's, it's less than still, ten thousand votes. Uh, it's still kind of a representative sample, though. I mean, that is true. That is true. But my point is, is that I feel like these numbers could shift with a higher, with a higher um, sample size. Could I mean, but let's let, let's be honest here. It's whose leadership do we need more now? That's the question. Mm-hmm. And I see. I view I view Elon Musk as the new Thomas Edison. Right. Like when you look into him, he doesn't actually invent a lot of things. He only actually has his name on three of the patents that his company owns. Like and everything, and a lot of the stuff he does is either like unnecessary or like less effective solutions to problems we've already answered mm-hmm. like his uh, underground loop thing which is is not going to help mass transportation ever for any reason uh but it is convenient for him as the ceo of his company to get employees to work that well it, you kind of hit the mark there with it's it's convenient for him yeah you know so the, the it's it's going back to this whole uh, rugged, individualistic, selfish attitude that we have in this country. And I think a lot of people just kind of admire that. I, I'm wondering if like actually what, what behind the poll is, like the psychology of the, the people who are clicking on Elon Musk are just saying, who do you actually admire more? I mean, that is, I mean, quite possibly because Elon Musk does have a huge following of defensive nerds. Ready to, <laughs> ready to spring into action to tell you how awesome he is, <laughs> even if he's kind of, uh, kind of most, I mean, like when, when you stop to think about like billionaires and how they behave publicly, like you may start to realize that you only really, he, only a select number of them choose to be very visible in the media. Mm-hmm. And Elon Musk is one of those people. And Donald Trump is one of those people, although I'm skeptical if he's actually worth a billion dollars. I don't think he is. There's, there's a Family Guy episode where, the, where him and uh, Peter end up fighting because, because, he's, because Donald Trump sexually assaults, assaults Meg. Oh, jeez. Uh, but they, they get into a 
lead into a fight, and the fight is prompted when Peter calls Donald Trump, you know what you are? You're cash poor. <laughs> all your money's, he's like, all your money's tied up in it. He names a bunch of things. He says, you're cash poor. <laughs> and then they get into a, a giant Peter Griffin, like the chicken fight, but instead it's Donald Trump and Peter. And it was one of those fights that probably took like 10 minutes of the episode. Yeah, no, they just fought all over Washington, like trashing every major monument and stuff. Which, which is uh, ironically uh, symbolic of Donald Trump administration. <laughs> yeah. I, like, I, I just, you know, the thing is with the, with the Pope, mm -hmm. I mean, I, I like the Pope that, that they have now, although I'm not Catholic. So like what he really says is just morally symbolic, you know, it's yep, yep, fair. So, but you know, I, I, I do respect him and on his stances on, you know, gay marriage and, um, you know, other social issues that, that are, aren't coming to mind. I don't know healthcare. what he's healthcare. Yeah. Healthcare, war, that sort of thing. Not um, I, into atheists. I just don't like it. I just don't like it when, I, I mean, I don't know. It sort of gets into a hairy position when you start looking for religious leaders as mm -hmm. as as leaders in general. You know what I mean? Like it it sort of takes them out of like the spiritual yeah. realm into a political, socio political realm, and I'm just like, ah, I, that's it, a dangerous path to take. And the other thing is too is like the Pope. Oh, the Pope that we had before, whatever his name was, he was not great. Pope Benedict. Benedict. He was, I mean, he was a former uh, Hitler youth. I mean, yeah. come on now. <laughs> he looked like Emperor Palpatine, like, like literally. Before, before the scarring. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I am the Senate. Yeah, no, exactly. That's exactly what he looked like. He's like, I think he's like one of the few popes to ever retire too. Like, yeah. Like he was the first one to be like, you know what? No. No. Not for shit. I'm, I'm i'm not gonna die i feel like the pope he, he wouldn't talk in like sort of like southern accent like you're doing there i think he'd be more like i don't know italian or maybe german he's probably a german i think he was german yeah he's yeah like, well yeah yeah because he was in the hitler youth right exactly oh but this shit i'm i'm done with this i want to retire now <laughs> yeah uh and of course the third choice is joe biden who i have very mixed feelings on who I feel I feel like Joe Biden is just like we reached a point where like slightly below average is the best option <laughs> well I, I, here's the thing about Joe Biden and and however you feel about his politics or whatever it's and you know we've mentioned this before he's he's not a strong leader mm -hmm. I, I he he I think he was kind of the he was the leader that we needed at the time which is sort of like the quiet old guy because everything in the world was just a giant fucking mess. Mm -hmm. So Joe Biden sort of represented quiet stability, which I think a lot of people found attractive, but he's not a great public speaker. Yep. And even though, you know, and conservatives make fun of him because he, he stutters. Well, he suffered from a stutter when he was younger and he's worked through it. So Way to go, conservatives, for making fun of people with a with a disability. Um, but and you know he's getting up there in age. He's seventy nine. But I also believe that um, uh, I'm trying to think. I think Andrew Jackson was well into his seventies when he finally got elected president. So um, and that's a that's side a, note. 
Um, That does not make older people as presidents sound good. (laughs) No, it really doesn't. Um, But Andrew Jackson is also one of those presidents from the past that conservatives also look up to. Um, Why? uh, Up until about 20 years ago, he was considered one of the best presidents ever. Um, But that that is that has changed with with time and what maybe i need to get brandon back on here to talk to me about presence what what did andrew jackson do that was considered good because because the man the the country the country the country grew under him like there was a like the whole thing with like manifest destiny and uh i mean he kicked the the native americans out of their land and he allowed for you know white settlers to grow so like uh, white settlers to occupy their land and to to grow and everything like that but in terms of like economic and society expansion he oversaw he was president during one of the most expansive parts of american history in terms of you know the economy and population growth and everything uh. and i mean at the time he was a rock star like he could not walk down the street without like a mob of people being around him um, because of like, and, and also he led the Tennessee militia in the war of 1812, which actually by the time he fought, I think it was the, the battle of new Orleans, like the war had already ended. Like, but like news did just did not travel that fast. So they fought the battle, but the British had already like uh, already had given up. <laughs> so it was basically like a meaningless battle but he ended up winning anyways but he got a lot of notoriety through his years for being uh, a general of the Tennessee militia and uh you know just like uh, a lot of the stuff I think he was like a judge or something like that he was just and and politically he was just a very popular person so um yeah I always wonder because I uh because the two main things that I know about Andrew Jackson is, uh, and this maybe wins him some fans, but uh, I all I know about him is that he created a witch hunt against Freemasons, and he uh, he he did that genocide. Yeah, the uh, yeah the uh, Indian Removal Act of eighteen thirty two. Yep. That was which was the Trail of Tears. That was uh, yeah not not good and rightfully so. Uh, it should not be considered one of the best presidents that we've ever had for, for those reasons. Although, you know, the, the witch hunt and the Freemasons, like, I, I really don't give a shit about Freemasons. <laughs> well, I mean, I mean, he was going around just arresting American citizens for being part of a club. <laughs> a questionably suspicious club, uh, but... <laughs> but still, oh. that, fair point, fair point. Although, to be in fairness, though, the Freemasons did inspire the Ku Klux Klan. So, you know, they're not innocent. Right. Right. Uh, although that's, I... That's... I feel like we're going to go down a rabbit hole talking about Freemasons and, and, and uh, well, like, all that shit. The last thing I'll say on the Freemasons, then, is just that, uh, you know, everyone's worried the Freemasons are secretly running the world. And I get that. However, uh, all the states that I see Freemason shit all over... Are places like Pennsylvania and Ohio. So if that's how effectively the uh, Freemasons control the world, I'm not really that afraid of Freemasons. Their results are terrible. <laughs> oh, Pennsylvania and Ohio. Yep. Still, still uh, politically significant, however, every yeah, four true, years. True, <laughs> true. And covered in Freemason stuff. Just 
Freemason parks and lodges and I see people go driving around here all the time with like Freemason stuff on their like license plates and shit. Mm -hmm. It's yeah. wild. Yeah. I yeah. Yeah. I think um ah, anyway, I'm not gonna get into that. <laughs> I think at one time a, a family member had a question, like they wanted to join Freemasons and uh an, another older family member was like, No, you don't want to do that. <laughs> I understand. But um, and getting back to, to Joe Biden, I just think that he's I, I think if we just need somebody who's a little bit better, a stronger of a of a, of a public speaker mm -hmm. um, and, and somebody who can kind of navigate these difficult times a little bit more articulately. Um, yeah. And, and I, I just you know, I, I don't see that coming from him. And I kind of wish like. Like the Joe Biden administration, the Biden administration has done some good things mm. and they just they're they're as as Democrats always do. They let the Republicans control the narrative. They're always on defense. They're never on offense. Um, see, so. see, like uh, I feel like see, that is a problem. That is a problem. And like on a certain level, I respect that uh, the Democrats are less of like a narrative driven organization and they're more of a uh they're more of a hey everybody statistics yeah. numbers important facts uh that stuff i think that's important but at the same time that it none of that stuff's nearly as emotionally powerful as a narrative yes exactly and and the thing is about it being emotionally powerful what republicans do is they can boil down things to a very simple phrase or something that's very uh, it very, it, it, it touches your emotions. Like, oh, yeah. so it's not really rational it, because it's, it's affecting your emotions. And I think, I, I think that issues are much more complicated. And when you can control it with a narrative that has a more emotional appeal, uh, then it's easier to get people on your side. Republicans also do a better job of rallying around their candidates than Democrats do. Uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of infighting uh, with with well, Democrats uh, and and uh, uh, you know I mean all the Republicans up until now rallied around Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. um, like yeah, that's true. The dissenting Republican voices towards Trump, um, few and far between. Yep. Basically, yep. Liz Cheney and Mitt Romney, and and, and Adam Adam Kinzinger. Okay, I'm not as familiar with him, but well, he's he's on the uh, he's the he's one of the Republicans that's on the January 6th committee. Ah, okay. And he's uh, he's a representative. He's actually, I think, he's retiring. He's not seeking re-election. Oh. Um, but he's, he's maybe a that's better... he feels comfortable on the panel. He's like, I think that honestly, that's that's it. I think that's exactly. It. Uh, I think I'm Liz tired. Cheney. I think Liz Cheney's making a power move here because I think Liz Cheney eventually wants. She wants the. I think she wants to get rid of the sort of Trumpian wing of the Republican Party, and she wants to be the, the sort of new head of the Republican Party. I think she wants to run for president. So she's trying to play this out politically uh, because she wants, to, she wants to be the new face of the Republican Party, which, like, uh, I don't know. I have mixed feelings That's about it. While I admire her for standing up for her principles and standing up for democracy, she is also, like, the daughter of Dick Cheney, who is basically uh, like uh, like the closest thing to a criminal mastermind we've had 
uh, in, in her administration, aside from Richard Nixon. I think they're kind of up there um, in terms of villainy. <laughs> hey, let's not forget, Dick Cheney could never have done it without Donald Rumsfeld. But <laughs> true, true. But uh, Dick Cheney was also, he's a very, very smart person. Mm-hmm. Very conniving. Anyways. Yes. <laughs> uh, I'll just, okay, my last thought on, on Joe Biden here, though, is just that, uh, unless you have more thoughts, I'm open to more. No, thoughts. no, no, no. I, I, I mean, I do, but I mean, we only have a certain amount of time. And I. True. We um, were going to talk about acting at some point, I think, true. too. We, we were going to talk about acting. So my final thoughts on Joe Biden is just that, like, I, I was never happy about Joe Biden being the uh, the Democratic presidential election. Because even though I definitely agree more with a lot of his policies as opposed to Trump's, um, I still don't know if I agree with the majority of his policies. And also, like, he still has, like, several of the things that I found problematic about Trump that don't help. Mm. Especially since so many people already don't like him. Which is like, uh, just like Trump, not a great filter. Not a great <laughs> Like, sometimes he'll just say shit. It'd be like, well, like, he'll have moments where it's, he's just like, hey, man, fuck you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he like, does kind of have that. Yeah. It's yeah. kind of like, damn it, Joe. Well, he, he did that during the, he during, he did that during the debate where he's like, Jesus, man, we just shut up. Like, that was like a, one of those moments where like, okay, that was the real Joe Biden. Yeah. You know? so, yeah. He is like another like really old low filter dude who still clings to policies that are outdated sometimes like keeping marijuana illegal at a federal level. Yeah, that needs to change. That needs to change. Um, I, I, I will stay. I will still say though, like, and and while yeah, I wasn't thrilled with Biden as also uh, he's not living up to the not living up to the student loan shit so far. Yeah, that's. Well, that's that's a perspective that we we all need to, to change in the United States because so many people are just like um, so many of the people that have had student loans and paid it off. They're like, well, what the heck? Why why are you benefiting other people? We need to we need to look at education as an investment in this country and not as an expense. Um, yeah, it's it's wow. uh, it's a perspective change, and I don't think we're we're ready as Americans yet to have that perspective change. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the same thing with healthcare. I, I argue with more people who are like, well, I didn't go to college. Why should I have to pay for it? Uh, like, mm-hmm. I went to trade school instead, so why is this my problem? And it's like, because it's society's problem. problem. Exactly. It's, we, <laughs> it's, people don't, people don't recognize that, the, the whole butterfly effect of things like that in society, you know? I think there's a, this unfortunate political dichotomy in America where people either want to see America as the systems and some people want to see it as the individuals, unrealizing that those are the same systems interlocked. We are all individuals within inside the system. Mm-hmm. And Republicans are trying to sell you, oh, no, things only matter on an individual level. And, Republic- and Democrats are being like, the system's falling apart, guys. And it's, um, yeah, it's, it's part of the reason why I can't get along with that whole rugged individualism sort of mindset, because it, it sort of, it sort of just says it's, it, it tries to say that like, no, I am in control of my destiny. 
which like, I think part of that is, part of that thinking is, is right on. Like you're in control of the choices that you make. To a like, degree. To a degree. And you have a, 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 an amount of individual responsibility that you Absolutely. have. But you also have a responsibility to your fellow person in society. And, um, and yeah, in terms of the systems and everything like that, and that breaking down is, yeah, it's, it's we, are, we are not in a good place right now. And um, I, I think we need a better, a, a better, stronger leader than, than Joe Biden. However, um, people coming up on the Republican side are, are just freaking scary. And uh, whether it's Donald Trump or DeSantis or Mike Pence, um, you know, I just, uh, but also, I mean, who do the Democrats have that like could, could even run against Joe Biden? There's nobody. There is nobody um, like within that, like, I think Pete Buttigieg is, is, might be the closest, but he's still too young. Like he needs a few more years. Um, I also, I, I also have issues with Pete Buttigieg. Yeah, too. He, he but, like, uh, he, I don't know. Pete Buttigieg seems pretty, he, sometimes it just feels like he's really right, riding the white privilege train a lot. Mm. Like, just like he feels out of touch with, uh poor maybe less white americans from yeah. what i can tell yeah and he also uh like there are a couple of responses where he's been on like fox news or something and he had like there was an abortion uh i, I think it was recently where he's talking about abortion and he make a, made a very very good point about it and there are some things that he speaks well about but then there are also some things when he's catching shit for like supply chain issues like he, like just the the sound clips and the interviews I've seen with him is like you're not you're not saying what people want to hear. You're just basically blaming everything on the airline industry, which people kind of smell as bullshit. Like whether it's a hundred percent true or not, eh, like don't just say it's the airline's fault. You know, you know what I mean? Like, Barely ever one group's fault. Right, exactly. And I think people see that and they're just like, this guy's just full of shit, you know? Uh, he's another lackey that's uh towing the uh you know the democratic party i i i it's technically i don't think this technically counts against or for him but i do find it hilarious that like a lot of his supporters fell into the uh like like boomer like older boomer women were like that's my that's my mom she loves pete Buttigieg. <laughs> yeah no like whenever i'd see pete Buttigieg rally it'd be like it'd be a lot of women between like like 50 and like and like 60 something and they're all just like dancing to the music <laughs> <laughs> you i don't think my mom went to a pete Buttigieg rally but like she she would definitely she, i know like i remember talking to her and she I, she's like oh i like that Pete Buttigieg, Mayor Pete, I like him. <laughs> I mean, the other thing, like, the, I think I think the reason that some people like Pete Buttigieg also might be because, like, like he's practically like, I'd have, I guess, I'd have to look more into his policies, but he's he's like, he's kind of like a conservative gay person, like, <laughs> like he 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 has, like, sure he's he's gay, but he also has all these like. Very like family values. I was in the military. I like it's like just it's like ah oh, okay. Like he's what he's what uh, he's what gay Republicans should look like instead of what they do look like. Uh, which 
which is the, which is totally unconcerned with their with their own with their own rights. Uh, well, I think I think whether he actually you know believes in that stuff or not, I I, I think that's just a way for him to appeal to the other side. I mean that because because you gotta if if you want to get any of those swing voters to come over and vote blue, you 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 gotta hit on something that uh, like family values or something like that because that's family values is also a big issue with uh, Latino voters. And uh, that, that's part of the reason why a lot of Latino voters are, are moving over to the Republican Party, which seems counterintuitive. I but... mean, they've all I mean, there's always been at least some strong uh, Latino presence in the conservative party, although most of it used to come from American Cubans. Right. And that's because Cubans just I mean, anything, uh, any sort of left leaning economic policy, they just absolutely hate because they think it's going to get them back to communism and you know, I, you have talked about this on your show plenty of times about just the misunderstandings of what communism actually is, which I really appreciated um, the, the, those two, uh, especially those two episodes, especially with your, with your communist friend and breaking down that stuff. Um, but in yeah. fairness to those Cubans, it's not like, it's not like people who were happy about socialism are going to flee to America. <laughs> <laughs> like, like just statistically point. like oh yeah no i thought what was going on in cuba was great why are you here oh, <laughs> i got family here it's nice <laughs> that's, a, that's that's a really really good point that's a really good point. all right all i know is one day they took my tractor and so now <laughs> i live in america so now i live in america <laughs> well hey you know i'm i, I am all for people coming to America and trying to make, trying to make the best of its opportunity that they can. And you know what, if, if this country starts going down the dark path that I think it is, I, I might move somewhere else. I, I don't know. I, I, I don't want to be around for, for. I, I'd rather not live in America if there's going to be some type of like epic civil war. That's, that's not my bag. No, 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 I, uh, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to be put in that position either. So let's, let's lighten the mood. Okay. <laughs> we, originally, we're going to talk about here. So act, sudden change. Acting. acting. Uh, of course, you and I have both have a uh, history of doing acting and whatnot. Yeah, we met uh, doing, uh, well, we, we first met at the Just Go With It auditions. Mm-hmm. Um and I mistook you for one of your brothers, who I did meet before you. Uh, before I, I met, uh, I think was it was it Raleigh? I think it was Raleigh. I met at a third Saturday party. Oh, probably. Yeah. I look more like Raleigh than my other brother. Yeah. However, um, people have mistaken me for my other brother. Yeah. So- well, I I did that, and I I I I said, oh hey man, I I came up to you. I was like, oh hey man, we we met before. I I. We met at a third Saturday party and you just looked at me and you're like, really? <laughs> that was my first interaction with Ruben. <laughs> hey, that's not a bad, honestly, that's not a bad first interaction with Ruben. Uh, I'm, I would much rather have that conversation with people than uh, people who are like, oh, like the sandwich. <laughs> I was, I, what's weird about that is that people are so happy to tell you that. Like, I was at this party recently meeting some of my dad's co-workers and this one girl who seemed like a perfectly nice person, but she she was immediately like, 
oh, you're the br- the one with the name like the sandwich. She was so happy about it. And like she she would later, like later she, we we're talking to someone else and she's like, he's got the name like the sandwich. It's like, uh... it's like, it's like they, they were the first one to think of it. You know, like, congratulations, here's your gold star. You're the first one to, you're the first person to actually do this with my name. When actually, you know, you're not. It's like, it's, it's, it's a very large number of people. And, yeah. and also like, and like, they seem to think that it's cool because it's a sandwich they like to eat. And I'm just like, what? Reuben sandwiches are delicious. That's what people tell me, but I, I've never, I've never had uh, one. Well, yeah, you're a vegetarian, I, right? Yeah. 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 Unless you can get that like beyond meat corned beef or something like that. I don't know it's, if they have that with corned beef yet. <laughs> I don't know, man. <laughs> uh but no, I, the um what is it, the Diamond Deli in Akron? They make a really good uh they, they, they make really good sandwiches, but their Rubens are delicious. Okay, noted. Yeah. But uh, you know, that also depends on how you feel about like sauerkraut and Thousand Island dressing and Swiss cheese. Swiss cheese is okay, but it, it, like, like, I find that there's essentially two kinds of Swiss cheese. Like, a high, a high, a high quality Swiss cheese is not bad. Mm-hmm. But, like, the average Swiss cheese you buy at the store, kind of just flavorless. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like, ah, this is the blandest of all the cheeses. See, I feel that way about, um, I mean, just regular American cheese. I really don't get. Well, I don't count a reg- I don't count American cheese as cheese. That's the, <laughs> it's like it's like mostly oil. <laughs> uh, but yes, acting. I do uh, acting. Speaking of cheesy acting, um, I'm trying to try and tie it back. Yeah, you and I we met uh, doing improv at Just Go with It, and uh, I probably. Uh, I don't know. I, you have to be one of the people who I've worked with the most, like other actors, <laughs> over the years. You know what I mean? Well, I'm actually I'm surprised to hear that because you uh, you did the um, Great Lakes uh, uh, Shakespeare thing for a number of years. It's Ohio Shakespeare. Ohio Shakespeare. Yes. Yeah. 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 A number of years, and I mean, I guess maybe uh, depending stuff like that. You know, I did it for four summers and. You don't always have the same actors in the same show. I guess and, that's fair. I you know, and, and working on scenes with people, you know. I mean, we had so many just go with it practices at the Akron Art Museum. I and, guess that's true. And and performances in just like random places, um, which was a lot of fun. One of my favorite memories was when we did that one just go with it show at Patrick French. Mm-hmm. had sort of got us this gig and he was emceeing this fundraiser for his kid's school. And it was down in like Canton somewhere. Okay. Um, I know which one you're talking about. And, and he, we got invited to provide some entertainment for it. <laughs> and Ryan Dyke, I forget what the oh, I remember was what about, was. but Ryan Dyke, I think we were in heaven. Yeah. And we were like I- a family and, and Ryan Dyke was like the grandfather of the family. And he said, we should kill Jesus and it was in a in a in a room with like some yeah, probably very conservative people. You know what hard I mean? Hard to say with those. Hard kind of to people. say, but like you, you generally err on the caution when uh, Jared uh, generally err on the side of caution when you're doing shows for like that, that, especially that area where it's probably very light blue to light yeah. pink. 
uh, politically. So, and we all just, it was collective like, oh no. It was a giant denial of somebody's choice, which was like, looking back on it, I guess there might've been some, a better choice that we all could have made where we could have just been like, grandpa, you take this competition thing a little too seriously. The thing was, was, we all, everyone, Paused up a little, a little bit, bit of a pause there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the point is, everyone collectively no and it. <laughs> yeah. Just... Whoa! <laughs> no, I remember it. it was a genuinely hilarious moment though, because like, like <laughs> even afterwards, even he was like, "I'm glad you guys stopped me there." Because <laughs> like that does happen sometimes. There's an exception to every rule. <laughs> there. Yeah. Yeah, there. Sometimes you can do, uh, and uh, you know, I t- I teach this. I I t- teach acting um, at a university level. I teach acting for uh, to non majors, so uh, people who students who are you know they need like an art elective or something like that, and they they take acting for non majors. And I sort of have like a a series of like build ups uh, of what I do, and I have like a a, a section on improv. And so we go through and I talk about improv and we go through and I pretty much break down the rules of improv and, you know, yes. And, and, uh, don't pimp your partner. And, uh, I'm trying to think of some of the other, some of the other rules in improv. Uh, um, so, uh, so yeah, yes. And, um, uh, yes. And is almost the same thing as saying, as, as saying like, don't, don't negate or don't, it's like, it's like, like, that's the implication of yes and, is to say yes, not to say no. Um, right. But I think what happens a lot in improv, and I've noticed with coaching students, and maybe you've noticed this too, is that the yes and sort of morphs into like, I'm not going to create conflict. Mm-hmm. Uh, my character is not going to be contrarian to this other character. So there's no conflict. There's no interesting part of the scene. So it's like... Um, Hey dad, uh, can you hand me my shoes? And like, you know, you could be like, yes, son, here are your shoes where, you know, if you don't want to yes and that, but you just accept the offer of like, okay, this is the relationship and my son wants his shoes. Well, why don't you get off your lazy butt and go get your shoes yourself or make a choice that's somewhat conflicting that creates something interesting in the scene. But I'm digressing here. No, no, actually, this is a, this is an interesting thing because I, I would so like conflict is um, is a thing that a lot of people uh, talk about, but I would actually say um, like I actually go kind of, I actually go kind of the other way, okay, um, a little bit. Now, what I will say is that a lot of your your um, your examples there actually are great mm-hmm. because the difference between saying those things. And saying no, like uh, if someone says, "Hey, can you hand me my shoes?" Uh, and someone said, "You don't have any shoes. You're a hobbit." Exactly. That, that would actually be saying no because you're you're changing you're changing the reality of what's happening. Exactly. You, you can ask someone for shoes, and they can be like, they and they can be like, "Oh, I sold your shoes." It's not you're not really you're not really uh, you're not really negating something. You're you're creating uh, you're creating something that's still within the same reality. Exactly. Um, but the thing I would say is that conflict itself can be a trap. Mm, because okay. there, is a, there is a tendency um, between more um, uh, players who are, who, who are a little bit more um, 
players who want to get into it faster, mm-hmm. especially new players, will have a tendency to invent conflict. Mm. Uh, where, and um, when you try to invent conflict, it actually can create this thing where you are essentially preventing forward momentum. Yeah, the thing is being introduced, and you're just creating a conflict that sidesteps it. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes that just leads to people on stage arguing about things. And if you're going to argue about, and if you're going to have a scene that's basically people arguing about something, it has to be very emotional and has to be funny. Yeah, you can't, you can't just have like a reason debate is not entertaining. <laughs> uh, and and a, and a negotiation is worse. Yeah, like a negotiation scene is is a scene where essentially it has stakes, but we've taken the stakes down to like we're down to the least interesting way we can resolve them. Right. Uh, which is just people going back and forth on a negation on a negotiation or an argument. Um, so con so like you have to almost find conflict naturally. And mm-hmm. uh, Matt Dolan was a was a person who really turned me on to like positive improv Mm. the idea that building a scene doesn't have to be about inventing a conflict that it can be about um heightened agreement Mm. where i say a thing and instead of us working against each other we're working towards something together yeah um where the conflict is not necessarily between us the players but more of a goal or challenge. Mm. Um, that was something that Matt Dolan really turned my turned me on to. And, and the more I thought about it, and the more I witnessed it in scenes, the more I realized uh, its its potential as a way to create uh, create scenes. Because because scenes are created by agreement, mm-hmm. um, and there is a difference between actor agreement and character agreement. That's that's the big one. I'm glad you're breaking this up. Uh, uh, the difference between actor and character. Oh yeah, yeah. I, and and you're teaching me things about improv still, as we are. Uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, everything that you're saying is is the hundred percent makes sense. And you know, it's uh, the journey of of going through improv and learning about it is like you can continually learn things. And I think that's the beautiful thing about improv, especially, is that like we you can have all of these rules and su- and such but like you can watch a scene that just totally breaks the rules and it still works mm-hmm. you know and that's sort oh, of yeah. the beautiful thing about art you know just in general but especially improv oh yeah at a certain point i stopped thinking about things as like necessarily like hard rules or whatnot although mm-hmm. like when you're teaching like beginner level you still kind of like lay it out like that cuz you're like oh, and that's kind of and that's kind of what I have to do for my students as non-majors. I kind of have to just keep them in order to, you know, make sure that they're comfortable with the scene. Because a lot of these, they're not performers. You know, they're like, you know, uh, engineering majors that just want to get yeah. like, a, like a credit. You know what I mean? So yeah. I'm trying to get them to be able to be comfortable standing on stage, let alone speaking on stage. So like, you just got to keep things simple for them. You're here for that easy B plus on your humanity, sir. <laughs> And honestly, man, and uh, God, this is getting into a, a, a another issue, like just getting people to show up because my, my class as a teacher, I'm very like show up on time and just participate and do the best that you can and you will get an A in my class. But, and to be fair, 
especially these last couple of years that I've been teaching, especially in person, it's very difficult just with, you know, COVID and, you know, a lot of these students like, you know, that are coming up now in college, they were doing online learning for like almost two years. And uh, there's just, there's just a lot of anxiety about going back into person and stuff like yeah. that. Totally understandable, totally. but like just getting people to show up is, is difficult. And you know what? A lot of students, they're having, you know, high anxiety, a lot of mental issues and, you know, for just getting them to show up is like sometimes like pulling teeth and it's, it's frustrating for me. I'm trying to be as accepting and understanding as possible, but like, I can't pass you if you miss 25% of the classes, you know? So it's, it, that's, that's a whole other issue, but um, uh-huh. yeah. So, yeah. Uh, so, so like I was saying though, I don't, I don't, I don't phrase it anymore as like right or wrong choices when acting. I, I think of it as, as like, um, as, as like more of like, a challenge or a risk or like a stake. So like the way I think of it in my head is that like certain types of choices are either high or low risk choices to make. And I don't, and when, when I'm saying that I actually mean that not necessarily like, I don't think it's necessarily a positive to reach for those higher risk cards because those higher risk cards are things like, this is going to be a scene about strangers, which is doable but it's your the level of success you're going to achieve on that isn't going to be as high and you're still this is a thing you're performing with for an audience so you do yes. want to be entertaining but also ultimately improv is is a form of free flowing uh, communication and when you when you choose something like oh we're going to be strangers what you're actually doing is you're making a choice that cuts off other choices because now that we're strangers, there's that means we can't appeal back to interpersonal things from our past. That means we don't already have a functioning dynamic that we can draw on. Like if I say, hey, we're father and son, we are there's like a million ways we can go with that and they yeah. come to us naturally. Mm-hmm. Uh, and even or sister uh, sisters, brothers, employee, teacher student i'm not a big fan of the teacher student relationship just because it uh it can be a very limiting relationship um because once you get into that uh a scene about someone teaching something to someone is essentially has two directions it can go which is that um they learn it or they don't learn it Mm -hmm. um and that's and, and basically just playing off variations of those so that's why I'm not a big fan of that. I'm also not a big fan of the um, transactional relationship. Like if we're doing a scene where it's a car salesman and a person who's buying a car, um, if they don't know each other, then this is essentially the question comes down to does he buy the car or doesn't he buy the car? Yeah. And there are choices you can make within that dynamic, but it's a, it's a very contained dynamic. Yeah. And all transactional scenes are like that because they can – they lack that emotional level mm-hmm. um, of how the characters can know each other. Mm-hmm. But you can still make a scene of a transactional character's work. It's just a matter of the fact that that is a higher risk, higher stakes choice to make. 
I, I, I like the way that you're framing it in terms of like not necessarily being good or, or bad because I've had to get out of that mindset as, as an actor, as an artist, as a teacher of being like, okay, this is good, this is bad. But where it's just like, okay, this is, uh, this is stronger, this is more interesting, this serves the scene better. Uh, I feel like you made a deliberate choice here, which that's great, whether it's strong choice, wrong choice, uh, you know, whether it's serving the scene. When you're getting into like actual uh, scripts, we have scripted scenes, that's different than improv, obviously, but it's, it's a different mindset that you have to get yourself out of when you're sort of become more of like the evaluation of what you're watching. Um, and it's, and it's, I mean, problem is, is audiences don't look at things that way. We, we as, we I mean, as artists uh, have a hard time looking at that way too. Cause there are a lot of fellow actors that I know that still look at, still are very judgmental and critique about like stuff that they see. And they're like, Oh, that actor was just bad. And I'm just like, well, uh, that doesn't really, you know, mm-hmm. okay. I mean, what was, were they miscast? Was it the script? Maybe it was not the director didn't have a good idea of what this moment was about. Was the actors scared for making choices, that sort of thing. Like there's all kinds of different reasons why something, when you watch something and it's just like, "Eh, that just didn't, that just wasn't as interesting or wasn't as dynamic or or whatever as maybe something else. Mm -hmm. And just to evaluate it as good or bad, I think it's just, it's kind of lazy. Not only that, but like, there's a lot of different reasons why an actor's performance might be bad or could look bad within a film. Some of it's editing. Like, directing and editing can dramatically affect how good your performance in a movie looks. Like, uh, 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 I reviewed this movie on my channel recently, Ultraviolet. Um, I commented on the fact that, like, the acting is just, like, terrible. And the Mm. thing is, is that, like, I've seen some of the actors in that movie in other things. So, like, even if they're not great actors, I know they can act better than this movie. And and there's and when you get in the film, there are so many other things that go on behind the scenes, and even in theater too. Like, there could be issues with casting, like uh, with like the producers, with funding. There could be relationship issues. There could be all kinds of things going on behind the scenes, uh, which and like you said, with editing too. You know. Um, an editor can really make or break a movie and uh, it's, or make or break an actor's performance. So uh, it's um, yeah. Yeah. And, and that's why like I, when I try to tell my students this too, but like, even when I talk to people now about like, um, like actors or something, and it's like, yeah, that just, it, it just wasn't like this actor wasn't very good or I just didn't like it. I was like, well, it's, it's, it's less, the actor's fault and and fault is really kind of a yeah. I don't like using that word but for the sake of just not being so wordy um it, it it's really more on the uh, responsibility of the director and the writer and the casting director because in films that person got cast in that role for a reason because somebody thought that they would be good for that um now there are other things that go into it like okay we're going to put this actor in the role because um there's all kinds of other things they're sleeping with the producer or you know they're uh you know they're a name and they're going to draw certain uh certain audience certain attendance for tickets that sort of thing um 
it could be both. And, you know, it's, it's sometimes it's not about, okay, who's the best actor for the role. And it's more about what other things are going on. So, you know, that happens. Directors also in terms of how they like to work with actors operate very differently. Like, uh, like uh, Alfred Hitchcock is a notorious one because he's, he once referred to a- to actors as essentially cattle, uh, and that he was he was like known for like even like occasionally positioning actors like faces for camera shots and whatnot to to get the exact like expression or whatnot that he wanted out of them. Wasn't that one woman like in in uh, who was the actor who was in the birds? Uh, I want to say Tippi Hedren, but I could be wrong. Didn't she have like some sort of like serious mental breakdown or something after that? Oh after yeah, that film. No, yeah, because like part of the filming was like throwing actual birds in her face, and so <laughs> Jesus Christ, and so and so afterwards she developed this like like uh, fear uh, based off of things coming towards her face, and that's I mean I, you know as an actor and like that sort of behavior is just in my mind is fucking garbage. I don't like it when people try to put actors in uncomfortable positions, uh, whether it's some sort of situation like that, or physically they're in danger of getting hurt or uh, like mentally or emotionally, they're just getting fucked with. Like, um, God, I've heard of so many directors that that just kind of play fucking head games with their actors, and it's just like, don't 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 do that. Let the actors do their work and and let it come out, and let's try and do it as safe and as healthily as possible. Yeah. I mean, I, and and that's aside from like, okay, if there's an actor who is like willing to do that, mm-hmm. that's if you have consent from the actor, then that is a little bit different. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, there are some actors who want to go there, like uh, yeah. like Heath Ledger asking Christian Bale to really hit him, uh, yeah. stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think uh, in uh, Daniel Day Lewis and um, in um, was it uh, oh God, what was that movie where he was like the oil baron? Uh, there will be blood. There will be blood. He, I, what, did Paul Dano play that role of his son? I oh, know he played a minister. Um, oh, okay, that's right. Well, th- I think there was an actor that was playing his. Wait, did he? Was he the? Was Paul Dano having like bowling balls thrown at him? That's like the very end of the movie. Right. Okay. Uh, well, I guess Daniel Day Lewis was throwing the balls like like way too close to Paul Dano. Like yeah. there was, a, and 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 like you know Daniel Day Lewis is intense, quote unquote, method actor and. Hopefully we can talk about what that shit means yeah. later. Um, you know, and so like he's he's putting another actor's life in danger or their physical well-being in danger mm-hmm. for 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 what something that, and the other actor I think it was Paul Dano was really pissed off that he was throwing the bowling balls at him. It was coming so close. Like that to me is just mm, man. I just don't I just don't like that. And I also think that there's a part of Hollywood that likes that shit because it creates buzz and it creates it's sort of like a marketing pr campaign yeah you know um yeah like that that was a big thing that kind of backfired on the the first suicide squad movie is that they like they promoted like uh jared leto's method acting 
like so hard and like afterwards like there was a lot of like commentary where, where some of it apparently had been exaggerated and and, and whatnot well the, the one story that i remember hearing from that is that he sent his castmates dead rats like packages and dead rats uh, so, and i'm so, so he, okay go ahead so he actually sent a number of different things to different characters based on like how he felt joker would feel about them and he apparently sent harley quinn a live rat um and he sent a dead pig to someone i forget who it was um well why well why what is what is like honestly supposedly what, will smith did not like him i wouldn't i wouldn't blame if you if you go back and you watch jared leto's performance as joker and i'm kind of glad we're talking about this now because now we're going to get into acting okay. um jared leto in, in my mind i don't think jared leto i think is a phenomenal actor and okay. he's done some really, really. Br- I mean, he left I think acting. He's kind of a weirdo in real life, but he's, I, he he is. But a lot of actors are weirdos in real life. Really? You know what I mean? And like, you know, they're human beings, and they're also artists, so they're entitled to be eccentric. You know, I mean, fucking, yeah. um, you know, Van Gogh was eccentric. A lot of like, you know, artists and stuff like that were eccentric people. Mozart, um, you know, eccentric people, but like, they're still artists. You know what I mean? They're pro- there's probably a reason for that eccentricity and it working I'm in their pretty, favor i'm pretty know? sure i'm pretty sure eccentric just means uh undiagnosed but like highly functional mental illness probably so um if you watch jared leto in yeah. suicide squad he's just acting crazy for the sake of acting crazy and i think that that kind of goes along with him sending packages of animals or whatever to his castmates. If, if you compare his performance between Heath Ledger's Joker's performance, every moment Heath Ledger has an objective and everything that he did psychologically, physically, uh, emotionally for the part, he is still working off of basic action objectives. What do you want in this moment? What do you need in this moment? And what is motivating the choices that you're making? If you compare side-by-side Heath Ledger's Joker and even Joaquin Phoenix's Joker versus Jared Leto's Joker, Jared Leto is just simply acting crazy for the sake of acting crazy. So, like, I actually, I will actually say that I, I like Jared Leto's Joker. And, like, I understand what you're saying, but, like, in terms of interpretations of the character, acting crazy to act crazy is valid. Yeah, but it's also, uh, you can do that so, at times, so, but so, if, so if I've you seen don't... This, I've seen this movie seven times. Uh-huh. Uh, so, 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 like, there are actually key moments in it where I'm... Also, I will say there's definitely also a moment in that movie where his dialogue has clearly been dubbed over. Mm-hmm. Uh, but... Um, so, like, the key moments that stand out in my mind is the scene where he's interrogating um, Ike Barinholtz's character. Mm-hmm. Um, in that scene, um, what he wants is to make this person uncomfortable. And I can see that in the scene. And, like, he makes choices that are physically intimidating. What he does is actually very reminiscent of what Jack Nicholson does as the Joker. 
And people don't really talk about this, but they have a lot of the same actions and mannerisms, including becoming too physically close to other people, touching them uncomfortably, um, saying things that don't make sense to other people in order just to get under their skin or mess with them. Yeah, and I think that that is part of the character of who the Joker is. And I, 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 I I'm just I'm gonna have to agree to disagree with you on that one because okay. I, I, I think there is a way that you can make people uncomfortable, mm -hmm. but, but also pursue something that's a little bit more interesting in the dynamic between uh, the characters in each scene. Because I, I like you, you think about Heath Ledger's Joker, and when he comes into the scene with uh, the, the, the party where he's looking for Harvey Two-Face. And he goes up to that guy and he says, you remind me of my father and all this stuff. And, you know, and then he sees uh, Rachel and, and all that stuff. And like, he's definitely making her uncomfortable, but that's not all that he's doing. There's more that he's doing there, you know? And getting close to people and touching them in wrong ways, obviously are different choices of, of achieving that, but there's still something more there that I feel like Heath Ledger has tuned into uh, than Jared Leto. And I, I, again, I'm saying this and I realize maybe slight contradiction versus what I said before. In fairness, uh, I was gonna say, in fairness, this is a movie that is notoriously criticized for how it was edited and put together. Uh, mm -hmm. Are uh, you talking about Suicide, Suicide Squad? Squad yeah. Have yeah. you, uh, oh my God. I've watched Suicide Squad. I watched the first one. I watched it once. I thought it was fine. It was fun. You know what I mean? Yeah. I just, just like all of those DC movies that came out about five, six years ago, I, I felt like the criticism about them was a little too harsh, but I, I didn't think they were particularly great, but it was, it was, it was a fun movie. So here's a fun thing that plays into what we were saying about how like editing though, can like affect movies and the acting in the movies. Mm -hmm. is that um, when, the, when the newer one by James Gunn was coming out, the producer of both movies like did an interview. And in the interview, he basically, he basically said something that I, I found shocking that he would have admitted in a public interview, mm -hmm. um, where he basically he was like, so yeah, we had one version of the film that was David Ayer's movie, and it was edited by the guy who did The Dark Knight. And then we had another version of the movie that was essentially edited by the trailer company who made the, like, Bohemian Rhapsody trailer for the movie. Mm -hmm. And what he said was, well, we test screened both movies. And they both, and they both, uh, they, they, they test screened about equally positively. And so we looked at that and we decided to put both movies together. And so basically he's, He's describing taking like a wacky uh, like superhero comedy thing and merging it with what was originally like a kind of edgy character piece and just sort of mashing them together into one movie. Mm -hmm. And it's like, that's a terrible plan. <laughs> you should probably have just picked one of those movies. <laughs> I, I was kind of blown away that he would admit that publicly. And and again, that you know, that's on that's on the editor. That's on the editor. That's on the, um, I think it's on the you know whoever decided that that was a good idea, that was on them. Yeah. But unfortunately, what ends up happening is the actors end up getting the blame for it mm -hmm. because they're front and center. And then people say, "Oh, Margot Robbie sucks," or "Will Smith sucks," or whoever else was in the yeah. movie sucks. No one knows who uh, Charles Rovin is. <laughs>
making these decisions. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so, but also to the, I guess with the risk comes the reward that the, the actors do get a lot of the credit sometimes when, you know, maybe the writers should serve a little bit more, deserve more of the credit, you know? So it would, it's, be, hard, it would be hard to make the dialogue from the room sound natural. <laughs> <laughs> and there's also the fact that directors, like I was saying earlier, work very differently with their actors. Like, um, yeah. Dave Batista was in an interview where he was talking about the difference between working with, uh, he mentioned the difference between working with James Gunn and Zack Snyder. Mm-hmm. And he said basically, like, James Gunn is like kind of a control freak. Yeah. Basically, like, he has very specific ways he wants everything done. And mm-hmm. he says that the reason, like, the reason actors like working with, like, Zack Snyder is because, like, he's extremely collaborative. Yeah. Like, he wants actors to make to make their own choices and he talks to them about what they want to do with the characters and stuff. And I think, I think both extremes Mm -hmm. is problematic. (laughs) They both have their pros and cons. Ideally what you want is somebody who's kind of in the middle, who's like, they have an idea, they have a concept, they have a vision, but they also allow the, the artists and the actors to create and don't stifle their choices. Cause even in theater, I have worked with directors who are very controlling and very stifling. Yeah. And it's, um, it, it, it's as, as an actor, it's, it's, it's just really hard to work in those, oh, yeah. in those sort of, in those sort of rooms. And it's like, it's like, look, man, let me, let me just, let me get there. Let me make some choices here. Let me, let me find some things that, you know, I, I came in with a bunch of ideas, but it just seems like you want your ideas to trump all of my ideas so what am I just basically a cog in a machine, you know, it's, uh, it's difficult working for, for directors like that. But on the flip side, you work with somebody who's like totally collaborative and just be like, yeah, just do whatever. And then, you know, you set sail with, with some choices and they might actually not be the best choices. And you need somebody to sort of guide the ship maybe in a more uh, specific direction. So mm-hmm. it's, it's, either extreme um i think michael bay is like that too he's very controlling i mean that Uh, makes sense um (laughs) yeah who was that who was that director i think we were talking about who had worked um who was very combative and there was like a youtube video of him and an actor a female actor who was they they were getting david o russell david o russell yeah who is who's clearly a talented man he's made a lot of big movies with that have gotten awards, but I, I, from everything I can tell, he seems like he's a dick. Yep, yep. And that um, that scene, I can't remember the the name of the the actor, the woman who was. I was Lily Tomlin. Lily Tomlin, yeah. And like, he's getting into like just such a bad argument with her about it, and like, you know, so, yeah, someone on set just recorded it on his phone of of him like yelling at her. Right, right. And, you know, I, I, you know, I know we see that all the time. You hear that where you get like little snippets of people who yell on set, famously Christian Bale. Also, that happened with Tom Cruise a couple of years well, ago. Christian Bale and David O. Russell apparently get along really well. So, what, Well, <laughs> there might be a reason for that. And, and Christian Bale, again, another actor who's fantastic in my mind. And, oh, yeah. Incredible. You know, as, as I know, uh, 
you know, as, as Batman, I love them as Batman. I, I like, I, I'm trying to think if there's a movie where I watch Christian Bale in and I'm just like, ah, I just don't believe you. Um, Christian very... Bale even makes equilibrium good. Like, <laughs> like if he wasn't in that movie, I don't know how watchable it would be. <laughs> yeah. Um, was that the one where everybody was like, you couldn't show any emotion? Yeah, no, it was, it was a society where they all took drugs to repress their emotions. And I mean, like, I actually have a, I have an episode about that, that movie. I don't uh, think, I got to listen to that. I haven't listened to that one yet. There, there are episodes I haven't listened to just for the simple fact that I know you review movies and I'm like, I haven't seen that yet. So I don't want any spoilers. <laughs> I understand. Yeah. Uh, equi- equilibrium though, is, is, it's, I mean, it's basically just like someone, someone saw the matrix and was like, I, I bet I could make this in, I bet I could rip this off. And then I, well, I think it's also a comment on like on like stoicism. I mean, maybe, but like in all honesty, it, it's Fahrenheit four fifty one. Yeah, <laughs> like the overall plot line aligns with Fahrenheit four fifty one. Kind of makes sense. It, it, it's like uh, we follow this guy who lives in this dystopian society where where art is suppressed, and his whole job is to go around finding people who are breaking the the rule in, in in Fahrenheit 451 it's all about burning books but in equilibrium he finds like anything that could inspire emotion so like paintings art books movies it's all got to be burned <laughs> and then of course he starts to have the feelings and like slowly realizes that he he believes in the world with the with the feelings instead of the world without the feelings and then it all leads up to the major difference is, I guess, would be Fahrenheit 451 leads with him escaping society, and the other one ends with him, like, combating a society, and that, mm-hmm. that's a big difference. Well, I mean, to be fair, to be fair, um, there, like, there are only so many sort of, like, original stories. And I like, mean, that's fair. Like, all, all movies now and everything that's come out is just a rehashing of some some story you know what i mean um it's a rehashing retelling update sort of thing or of, of some other story what's that or amalgamation amalgamation yeah a combination of a couple of different stories so yeah, yeah i mean you know it's 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 kind of hard to come up with something that's like wow i've never heard that story told before it is it is it is hard Although I will say the the thing about equilibrium is it is is it did feel very matrixy. So the yeah. um, like the I would say the concept uh, of of it, the costuming and the sort of the world they created. I I very much watched this and I was like, this just looks like a poor man's matrix. I mean, <laughs> like like that is like the thing is that like even like the action sequences are designed around the idea of I want this to be cool like the Matrix, but I do not have the budget of the right. Matrix. <laughs> right. Which I will give him that, like, it was a neat workaround um, that looks kind of cool. I mean, if you think about what they're doing, it makes zero sense. But, <laughs> but as a workaround for how can I make my action scenes look cool when I have, like, maybe a quarter of the budget of the Matrix, uh, in, in that terms, it is a success. It's also way better than his other movie, Equilibrium. I'm sorry, not Equilibrium. Ultraviolet, which is honestly might be the room of action movies. It's, <laughs> it's there are people there. who watch The Room and think that that movie is brilliant, though. 
I mean, the the room is accidentally brilliant. <laughs> Isn't all art accidentally brilliant? <laughs> well, I mean, that depends on like if you want to give things like a postmodern read or not. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, uh, like, what kind of read do you want to put into your art? Because that's a big thing. Like, if mm. we apply modernism to to a piece of art and look at it from modernistic ideas and concepts, it's going to be different than if we're looking at it from like, uh, from like a postmodern perspective. Mm. Like, a great example would be like uh, the movie Three Hundred, which I recently did an episode on. I listened to that one. I listened to that. Yeah. So, like, if we give that movie, like, a modernist uh, take, then, yeah, it seems kind of fascist. But if you give it a postmodernist take, then it's kind of not fascist, which is weird. Mm-hmm. Because postmodernism essentially juxtapositions the idea of who is the storyteller and what are they trying to convey. And it's a movie told by an unreliable storyteller. Um, but- I kind of di- disagreed with you when I was, when I was listening to that. Okay, it it is told by a, a dishonest storyteller, though. It, it dishonest? Well, yeah, no, I would say he's dishonest. Okay, because the way the he, way I the way I understood the story, and I was thinking about this as you were talking about it, is you you hear so it's definitely a person who's telling a story who was was there for part of the events, but wasn't there for all of the events. Mm-hmm. So there's a retelling of it. Yeah. Um, however, I viewed it as it's sort of like somebody is telling a story and then it's going back in time to the actual events of the story, which might not line up with how the storyteller is telling the story. Or it could be, it could be like you said, I think it could be so, one of the. The thing I would make as my argument for why I believe he is fictionalizing the story is a couple reasons. Uh, the first of which is that and in his story, there are certain things that wouldn't, that are clearly distortions of reality. Like when he tells the story, he deliberately makes certain aspects of the Persian's army seem like fantastical beasts or monsters who are okay. get them. And that's so, so the, so when we, when we look at that, we have to say either this movie is fantasy or this is a prop- piece of propaganda he's exaggerating. Okay. Or, or, uh, I, I guess, I guess I, I didn't see it that way because I saw it more of like a stylized reality mm-hmm. of, of what the concept was. So, so that part we, might stand out more to me because I read the comic books. Okay. And stuff like the ogres um, and like the ninjas having monster faces under their masks is not in the comic books. Oh. Um, so yeah. that's, a, that's a feature that's added to the movie. Um, and the other thing is I watched, uh, I watched the sequel, which is interesting. But the sequel um, is, almost like an, is almost like the flip side to the movie. Because the sequel is from the perspective of, actually, it's from the perspective of the Greeks and the Persians, um, and weirdly, the movie actually like humanizes random Persian characters from the first movie, mm-hmm. specifically the guy who's pushed down the well, which I was, which I thought was an interesting choice. Um, but uh, in the sequel, 
we meet the Greeks, whose philosophies on the war are completely different than the Spartans. Okay. And as the movie, the movie almost presents the concept that the first movie itself is the propaganda used to promote the Spartans into the war itself. Um, okay. It's, See, I haven't seen the second movie yet. So. It's, honestly, like on a technical level, I don't think it's as impressive as the first one. Mm -hmm. um, but the storyline to it is interesting to me because it almost feels like a weird antidote to the fascism of the first movie. <laughs> um, did Zack Snyder direct that one? He did not, but he wrote that one. Okay. Um, the first movie is largely the comic book with a couple small additions to it. Mm -hmm. um, Zack Snyder also thought it was important for uh, the movies to have more female characters in them, which I thought was interesting. I think that that is, I think that's important. Actually, something I was, I was kind of hoping to talk about, sort of to get back onto it, oh, is yeah. we, we often talk about our favorite actors and we only talk about male actors. True. So I would like to open this up. Who, who are some of your favorite uh, female actors? Okay, let me think here. What have I seen? I got to think recently. Um, oh, I'm going to forget her name, but um, uh, she's she's in Black Panther and she's like the main character of the movie Us. Um, yes, yeah, I know who you're talking about. She's an African-American actor. I feel like I'm going to miss it up, but I think it's Lupito Nyong'o. Am, am I right there? Is that who am I thinking of? Um, right. I'm looking up the cast right now. What part did she play? She's the main character in Us. I hang on. Well, yes, in Black Panther, who was she? It is, it is Lupita Nyong'o. Oh, okay. Um, I forget who she is in Black Panther, though. Yes. Yeah. 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 Was uh, she? Was she the like the main the main guard? I want to say. I want to say yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, okay. But I know her. If she is, that would make sense as to why I can't remember because if she is the main guard, that means her head is shaved in that movie, and she has hair in the other one. <laughs> might be throwing me off. Um, but yeah, no, I think she's really great. Um, yeah. I think she's a really good, uh, really great actress. Um, I think that um... oh man, I wish I thought of a list here. Um, uh, Natalie Portman, I think, is great. I think Natalie Portman is very talented. I think so um, too. I actually, she was actually probably her and Christian Bale were my favorite parts of Thor: Love and Thunder. <laughs> I have not seen Thor: Love and Thunder. I, okay. I do love I do love Natalie Portman. Uh, Black Swan. I think she was like 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 at the peak of her her work right there. Um, very uh, in in the prequels. I I actually um, and she was not used well. Let's just yeah. her talents were not were not utilized well in the uh, in the Star Wars prequels. Uh, although that does make me, that does remind me, I think Kira Knightley is also pretty talented. She um, is. I really like Kira Knightley. I, She's, I will um, admit, I will admit, I might not have thought of Kira Knightley if you had not mentioned uh, the Star Wars <laughs> prequel that where where her and where she played uh, Natalie Portman's body double, like in the oh, oh that, in the first movie she played like Natalie Portman is Princess Amidala and Kira Knightley played her um, her like stand-in like like uh yeah body double like 
not oh. like actor body double, but like character ba- right. body. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because she was in she was in disguise. Yes, yes. Oh, I didn't know one. that. Yeah, I, Knightley was okay. I think unless I'm losing my mind, <laughs> but I thought that's I thought that's who she played in episode one. Uh, Speaking of uh, British actors, uh, Emma Thompson. I love Emma Thompson. Oh, yeah. I, Emma Thompson, great. Uh, oh, I, I also like Emma Stone. I like Emma Stone, too. My girlfriend recently said she just, like she finds Emma Stone's voice annoying. And I was like, oh, I mean, you know, you're, everybody's entitled to their opinion. But I was like, no, nah, I, I, uh, I like Emma Stone. Although her level of attraction to me, and this is going to sound shitty, but um, when I found out she wasn't a natural redhead, because <laughs> I, <laughs> I have a thing for redheads, um, when uh, I found out she wasn't a natural redhead, my, my crush on her just sort of dwindled a little bit. <laughs> I, understand. I understand. I understand. Um, yeah. What I yeah yeah. Um, I I uh, have you seen the interviews? And I I I, I like Brie Larson as Captain Marvel. Oh um, yeah, I, I, I I'm a fan of 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 hers just in general. I've, I the, a lot of the work I've seen her in, I I really like her. Have you seen those interviews with her? where it's like the uncomfortable interviews with her and like some of the other Avengers cast. Mm-hmm. I, I've seen a couple of those. The only one I-, I can't tell if she's being like, if it's a joke or if it's for real, because she is so like, like, like the way that she delivers, like sort of like what she says, it sounds like I, I believe that she actually has a problem with what is going on. So it doesn't work for like, the, if it's supposed to be a joke, it doesn't work for the sarcasm of it. I, I want to hear, like, if you've watched that, like, what are your thoughts on um, that? The only one, so I don't know if I've actually seen the ones with her, but I have seen, I have seen the interview where like, where um, like Jeremy Renner made like an offhand comment that sounded like it was like, uh, a jab at her. Mm-hmm. Um, although to be fair, like, uh, what has Jeremy Renner ever done besides the Hurt Locker? Let's be. Um, uh, the Town was a really good movie. I haven't seen the Town. So with with uh, that was the that was the movie that sort of got Ben Affleck sort of all yeah, back that, uh, back on because I think he directed that and yeah. starred in it too. And the Town is a really good movie. I don't know how you feel about like. I mean, they're 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 not like Italian mafia, but it's kind of a mob movie because they're um, they're bank robbers and yes, uh, yeah. yeah, they. Um, it's kind of it's it's. I really enjoyed it. I really thought it was a good movie. I thought I, Ben Affleck was good in it, and I thought Jeremy Renner. Jeremy Renner also was. I thought he was also good in uh, the Hustle with Christian Bale. And, oh, okay. Um, oh, I forgot. Uh, oh, who else was that? Amy Adams was in that, and I love I love Amy Adams too. The Hustle was good. David yeah. O. Russell movie. Yeah, um, yeah, another David O. Russell I movie. I forgot right. Jeremy Renner was in that. Also, uh, Jennifer Lawrence was in that, who yeah. is like terrifyingly good. Oh, yeah. Uh, oh, she is very talented. Yeah. She's one of those actors, like you talk about like actors who just have raw talent. Like she never went to school. She didn't like really study acting or anything. She's just one of these people that you put on and she's just she's just on which to me is just like i really admire those people a lot um oh absolutely but you could kind of tell that like you kind of tell that though in some of her, some of her uh, 
I don't know. There was this really specific moment in uh, the hustle where she was talking about the the microwave, and I think she called it like the nuclear machine or something like that. And she said that like, yeah, well, you know, I read somewhere that it gives you cancer anyway, so I, I you know, I just I blew it up or something like that. And it was funny, but I was also like, did people know at the time in the seventies that microwaves were causing cancer? Was that like an improv moment that was sort of? Uh, I believe the there's always been people who are skeptical of the fact that it used microwave rays. Okay. All right. Well, then maybe I'm wrong. And I probably am. <laughs> but anyways, uh, yeah, Jennifer Lawrence, scary good. You know who else is, I would be terrified to do like an improv scene with? Um, Kate McKinnon. Oh, yeah? I, I mean, she, like on Saturday Night Live, she was the only reason why I, I enjoyed watching Saturday Night Live like these last like five years. She is just, oh my God, she is so great. Oh yeah, no, she's definitely talented. Yeah. Uh, oh, I just, I had another one a minute ago. Uh, Margot Robbie, I like. Margot Robbie's great. She was great in um, uh, that movie with Leonardo DiCaprio. Um, the Wolf of Wall Street. Wolf of Wall Street, yeah. Yeah, she was great in that. That was probably the first, that's the first thing I remember seeing her in. Yeah. Um, although my major exposure to her has been as Harley Quinn. Yep, yeah, yeah. Um, and she's great in that. So yeah. She's British, too. She's another British actor. Definitely. You know, I like, I like her Harley Quinn. Um, I actually was kind of like, I was kind of like, uh, before her, I was kind of like, meh on Harley Quinn as a character, because I'm, I'm just, uh, I don't know, I'm just, I'm, I guess I'm more of a serious person, like characters like, like Deadpool and, uh, and uh, Harley Quinn were just always kind of like meh to me, uh-huh. but uh, I will actually say that um, the actors who have portrayed those characters have kind of elevated them for me a little bit. Yeah. Uh, like, I like Margot Robbie as Harley Quinn, and um, I enjoyed, who was Ryan, Re- I enjoyed Ryan Reynolds' Deadpool. Ryan Reynolds, yeah, Ryan Reynolds is, he's a great actor. I think he's one of those actors that sort of have sort of settled into like a, a personality. Yeah. And so, um, and this is going, going like into a conversation that maybe we can have about actors. Oh yeah. And, sure. you know, and I definitely want to keep talking about female actors, but also the kind of actors who disappear into a role versus the kind of actors who are like just basically themselves and they've identified sort of this personality that they could just play on. That's very interesting. And I think that, um, I think that Ryan Reynolds kind of, he, he's figured out what's booking and working for him and he's just sort of stuck to it. If you were to meet Ryan Reynolds on the street, you would probably know how he talks and what kind of interaction that you have. But if you meet somebody like Gary Oldman on the street, I wouldn't know, like, if he started talking to me, I wouldn't know if that's really him or if that's some character that he's playing. Because Gary Oldman, in my mind, is one of those actors that, like, disappears into a character. Oh, yeah. After character. You know, yeah. Drawing the differences between oh, those. There, there's, lots of, uh, there's lots of actors who do that as opposed to what's uh, going on with Ryan Reynolds. As far as I can tell, Ryan Reynolds essentially plays two characters, which are straight man Ryan Reynolds, and uh, wacky Ryan Reynolds. Yeah. So like, there's either him as as the is the antagonist or protagonist. There, he's either the one making the jokes or the one who's the victim of the jokes. That's that's. And honestly, if he's getting work, like he's getting, and, and this is the other thing I tell about people that like just sort of hate on 
like like actors or something. I'm like, well, they're getting cast and stuff and they're working. So they're doing something right, you know? Yeah. And it's not, and it's, and it's like, it's, it's not like they were going to, it's not like the parts that they play were going to go to like more diverse actors. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Like, and I don't, I don't mean like, to be clear, I mean like diverse in terms of their range of acting. Uh, like, Versatile. Like it's not like Gary Oldman is going to be starring in the Hitman, what, Hitman's wife's bodyguard. Like, <laughs> like it's it's definitely going to go to Ryan Reynolds because like he's got that like sort of like uh, quirky comedy thing going on that's gonna it's gonna distract you from how like shallow the script is. Uh, <laughs> although I will say like the ones like one one uh ryan reynolds performance where i was kind of like disappointed about it was uh you ever seen the movie life no maybe so it's, uh, it's basically alien meets gravity uh okay. and it and basically it's just a bunch of people floating around this space station as they uncover an alien and then proceed to be stupid about it oh yes 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 i did see that yeah and ryan reynolds essentially plays himself mm-hmm. uh, as the guy who has to say i think this is a bad idea everybody uh, and then, and then proceeds to possibly uh, make it worse. Uh, <laughs> I do remember that movie. Yes, it's not very memorable. Right. Uh, I can't remember where I saw that. If I saw it in the theater, or if I saw that, if that was one of the movies I watched during COVID, where I was sort of like coerced into watching it. I can't remember. It, it was a movie that was recommended to me by people who failed to recommend movies I've enjoyed. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I hope I'm not on that. I hope I'm not on that list. Really. Uh, so far, no. Um, actually, the one recommendation that I agreed with them on was a movie I had already seen uh, called uh, a Natalie Portman movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, a, um, Annihilation. Ah, okay. I haven't seen that. Which, oh, it's very good. It's yeah. very good. Uh, especially if you're looking for maybe something with a primarily female cast. Okay. Uh, it does have Oscar Isaac in it too. Um, <laughs> did he fuck everything up like he did in uh, Last Jedi? No. <laughs> um, well, I mean that's debatable. Um, but he he he's he's a smaller part. Um, I guess I can't comment on anything uh, any of those other things without uh, giving anything away about the movie. But it's kind of like it's it's kind of like the thing. Like I would describe the movie as being like kind of like the thing. Not so much in the idea that like that like oh it could be anybody, but more like in the idea that like there is a genetic like the there is like a genetic alien invasion that is altering the world around them. Hmm. Um and it's it's very cool. I definitely would recommend uh the thing I'm not the thing, Annihilation. Annihilation. Stars Natalie Portman and has a fairly strong uh primarily female cast as well. Okay, so somebody came up to my mind when we were talking about, um, or, or a question actually, sort of relating back to DC Comics and Batman. Sure. Sure. Who do you who do you think is, in your opinion, the best Catwoman out of all best the Catwomen? Cat yeah. Okay. Um, Zoe Kravitz. Zoe Kravitz. Okay. I would definitely say Zoe Kravitz. Um, and that's not just based on her performance. It's based on how well the movie portrays the Batman-Catwoman dynamic. 
Mm. In terms of the Batman-Catwoman dynamic, I would say that the Batman has the overall best representation of this. Mm -hmm. Um, Like, just every moment between them is like, yeah, that's exactly like a Batman and Catwoman uh, interaction. Mm. I was really blown away by um, how the movie and their performances lined up on that. Cool. Um, I, I was very happy with it. A lot of people say Michelle Pfeiffer. And I, I, I am I am one of those people. I I have I have a lot of like I think so I have grown a I have grown a somewhat of an appreciation for Batman Returns, uh, a movie I used to um, fairly dislike, uh, but I have grown an appreciation for it. Um, I rewatched it uh, was either this year or last year, and I came to the conclusion that like. Is it is it accurate to Batman? Not really, mm-hmm. not really at all. Mm-hmm. But in terms of it being a weird fever dream of the movie, I I enjoy that kind of thing. <laughs> like, there's something about weirdness that appeals to me, and Tim Burton's Batman Returns is exceptionally weird. Um, as a person who is really into Batman, um, I think I, I think they well. It was, you you come at things from a more like you're looking at it hierarchical, and I'm not disagreeing with anything that you're saying. But you look at things as like, okay, how does it work as a function within the concept, and then how does the concept work within your feelings about Batman? While I don't disagree with anything that you're saying, just from the performance aspect of Michelle Pfeiffer's Catwoman from the beginning of sort of being the uh, nerdy introverted. Uh, neurotic uh, executive administrative assistant or whatever her title was to Max Shrek to the Catwoman and this really, I felt like psychologically in-depth sort of deep character with a lot of layers and a lot of, you know, things that are going on. I just, I just feel like Michelle Pfeiffer, her performance was just a lot, it, it felt just a lot sh- stronger in my opinion because i find i find the performances in that movie kind of outlandish and cartoonish uh i think danny devito's is outlandish and cartoonish in terms of yeah so so let me get into what my what my actual problems with michelle pfeiffer's catwoman are okay uh so step no thing number one uh her origin story is interesting thematically but also weird um, and it's weird for a couple reasons. One, uh, I do like the idea, like, I do think it's interesting that essentially she's a character who is driven insane by misogyny. I think that's an interesting take on the yeah. character. Mm-hmm. Um, however, um, the fact that she falls out of a window and is given supernatural powers by a series of alley cats is weird. That, that was a very, very strange and gross part. I remember being and a kid also, and watching that movie and just being very grossed out by it. And it also marks the connection between the Tim Burton movies and the Halle Berry Catwoman movie. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well... It's unfortunate. Uh, I, haven't, but, I haven't seen... I, uh, admittingly, I have not seen the uh, Halle Berry Catwoman. I know it's, it's just... Not it is movie. one of those movies that is only worth watching for how notably bad it is. Like, it is, like, I described Tim Burton's Batman Returns as a fever dream, but, like, it's a fun fever dream. And, like, Catwoman is like a, what the fuck? Can't you <laughs> dream? 
but uh, but the other th- the other thing about Michelle Pfeiffer's character, the thing that really throws me off is that um, Batman Returns took like the two least insane Batman villains and was like, but what if they were mentally ill? Mm. And like, I kind of feel weird about that. Like, Catwoman's not mentally ill in the comic books; she's just a cat burglar. Um, but in the movie, there's like a heavy emphasis on the theme that her and Batman are mentally ill and that they have a they have this like split personality problem, which the film doesn't really understand split personalities. But that's but like it heavily st- like it basically there's parts where Batman like just comes out and says this to Catwoman. Yeah. And like this theme is actually, interestingly enough, actually carried over into batman forevers it's it's yeah. actually like the one thing that ties it's one of the few things that ties the movies together mm-hmm. um but michelle pfeiffer's catwoman uh is just like i like i see what you're saying but like like everything in the tim burton batman movies it feels like a it everything just feels extra heightened to me mm. And, like, when I watch it, and actually, when I watched um, the first one, the thing that I took away from it most was, this looks like a stage play. I could see this on stage. Mm. And, like, the same thing kind of goes for Batman Returns, um, where it's like, everything is a set. Everything is this heightened reality to it. And I, I, I'm not opposed to that, generally speaking, but, like, when I think about what makes batman interesting to me it's it's not so much this heightened reality element um that tim burton is introducing um because what tim burton introduces it it feels like to me is like a cartoon for adults and then the studio came in and they were like no we want a cartoon for kids get Mm. joe schumacher in here (laughs) yep I, that's exactly what happened. Um, I, I don't disagree with you, what you're saying. I just, I, I actually like that heightened sense of reality that Which Tim Burton fair. created. Yeah. Which is fair. It is actually yeah. what is most appealing about his versions. Mm-hmm. It's just not, when I think in my mind of what I most want to see in a Batman movie, um, that sort of isn't, that's not the main thing I'm looking for. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. What One of the things I like about Batman is that like even with the fantastical elements, Batman is somehow more human or grounded than other villains uh, than other superheroes. Right, 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 right. Uh, so that's that's sort of like so for me, for me the Christopher Nolan movies were like a revelation when I was watching them. Just like the the performances and the directing and the way they chose to portray the characters and the storyline. That really, I will say though, really appealed to me. Getting back to the Catwoman, I, okay. I, I, I thought Anne Hathaway was was fine as Catwoman. Um, I thought she did great and she, she was, was interesting. And but like I just the relationship between her and Bruce Wayne slash Batman and Catwoman and Batman, I it it was one of the one of the parts that felt a little hurried. I just didn't. I I felt like their relationship needed to build a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Um, I would just would have liked to have seen that, but like, you know, I, I, the the Christopher Nolan trilogy. I agree with you hundred percent, but I don't think that the Christopher Nolan trilogy could have happened without Tim Burton. Well, yeah, bringing it to a semi-realistic level, like at least taking away from the camp 
of the like the 1960s uh batman i mean you know tim burton kind of has his own like gothy version of camp um yeah yeah technically well that's his aesthetic though i mean that's the way that's the way that's the way edward scissorhands is that's the way all the movies that he does there's this sort of like um you, you, like like you were saying it's it's heightened it's sort of fever dreamish it, it almost feels like you can see this on, on stage mm-hmm. um yeah I, I i now you kind of said that that just yeah that's tim burton in a nutshell <laughs> yeah no like um i have mixed feelings about tim burton but like um he has made some incredible movies and i will say that i think the reason he stands out so much in the 90s was because he was a true like a guy who had like a true signature like vision of like of his work as compared to like in the 90s a big problem i have with 90s movies is that like even some of the good ones it's like this could have been directed by anybody yeah yeah there's nothing to differentiate the way it feels from like any other movies that was directed by anyone else yeah i think there are a couple of notable 90s directors oh yeah totally yeah, yeah, but I, I, I generally agree with what you're saying. It's sort of like, yeah, these kind of, you know. And, and you might, put, and some people might be like, well, Tim Burton did some, not Tim Burton, uh, Steven Spielberg did some of his best work in like the, uh, the '90s, and it's like, well, I guess that's technically true. But Tim Burton started directing in the '70s. Right, right, right. right. He's been direct, directing forever. Yeah. Uh, speaking of Tim Burton and female actors, oh, yeah. how do you feel about Helena Bonham Carter? Um, I do. I, I like Helena Bonham Carter, uh, generally speaking. I yeah. think she's, I think she's talented. Um, there's a few movies that like uh, she has a nice alternative look that appealed to me when I was young. Um, <laughs> but I would say overall, I like Helena Bonham Carter. I think sure. she does a good job in the things she's in. Um, let's see here. I even liked her in Planet of the Apes. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I like early like Helena Bonham, Bonham Carter. I like early stuff like like 90s Helena Bonham Carter because she seemed like she was really trying to explore that versatility as an actor. I think now she's sort of sunk into this personality. And, um, you know, with it comes like, like her. When she gets cast in something, you kind of know what you're going to get. Mm-hmm. Um, she's I don't know if you watch, there's a TV like series. That. What's that? I said What's she's kind of like Johnny Depp like that uh yes yeah yeah although i do think johnny depp i think he's a bit more versatile of an actor i would say i think was more versatile as an actor yeah i I feel like the choices that johnny depp made as he became more famous uh were less ambitious yeah and i think that happens as as like if you're thinking at it from it from a i just want to stay employable sort of thing you you generally end up sticking with what works, and un- unfortunately, there aren't a lot of actors who kind of reinvent themselves. I think actually um, Matthew McConaughey is one of those actors who's kind of reinvented himself of, like over the span of his career. Oh yeah, oh, um, definitely. Yeah, yeah. So I, you know, it's it's and, and really at the end of the day, it's just it sort of depends on you know what kind of stuff that you want to put out and what you want to do. Um, you know, I, I'm not, 
I find the, the versatile actors versus the, the actors who kind of are basically playing the same characters all the time. I don't, I, I, all I look at is like, do I believe them in what they're doing? And if I do, I can enjoy it. And I really don't get like all upset that Tom Cruise is basically saying, playing the same character in every movie. Agreed. He's still believable. I, I'm a big fan of Jason Statham. I, Jason Statham, dude, he's, I really like him too. Like from like all the, um, like the whatchamacallit movies, like from, um, oh, who's that British director that he did a couple of films for like Snatch. Uh, Oh, uh, Guy Ritchie. Guy Ritchie, like the Guy Ritchie films. He did that one, The Italian Job. He's been in a couple of Fast and Furiouses too, I think. Yeah, actually, like, he was, he's like, just he was fun. one of my favorite parts in Fast and Furious. He's just uh, a fun actor, man. Oh, yeah. And yeah, he's going to play the same, but like you look at Jason Statham, like he's got the bald head and the, the goatee and he's sort of got that personality. He's got that Cockney accent. He's going to be the same sort of dude. Like he's not going to be playing like 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 a king you know what i mean mm. because that's not that's not who he like that's not his range um you, I, will, you know? I mean maybe he could play like a king or something like that uh, you know but like he's gonna be sort of like your typical sort of blue collar action hero yeah um you know that's kind of what i would say about samuel l jackson too you know or even michael b jordan because i you know like uh Chadwick Boseman, rest in peace. You know, I think that there are roles that Chadwick Boseman put did. I mean, Black Panther, flopping out those roles. I don't think Michael B. Anthony could have played that role. I I, I don't Michael, think uh, Michael B. Jordan. Michael B. Jordan. Michael B. Who's Michael B. Anthony? Michael B. Jordan. Um, I don't think he could have played that role. Uh, but also, there was a story about there was um, there was a soap opera that Chadwick Boseman was cast on like maybe about like 15, 20 years ago. And he, he declined it. He just felt like he couldn't do the part. And he recommended Michael B. Jordan. Michael B. Jordan came in and did it. And it was, it was a part that was fit perfect for him. And my point about this is, is that actors bring certain amount of just who they are naturally to like certain parts and certain roles. And some actors fit roles better than other actors. And, you know, if they were a more versatile actor, yeah, maybe they could have done that part. But sometimes they're just actors. They just don't identify with the role for whatever reason. And it doesn't, I don't, and again, I don't think it makes them any, any better or worse of an actor. It's just, they just have a different yeah. level to themselves. You know? I, I think there, I think there's also this, this issue that um, actors don't like universally connect with people too. Like there are like um, a good example, I think would be, have you ever seen the movie Valerian? No. So it's a science fiction movie by Luc Besson and it stars um, Dane DeHaan and uh, I think her name is Cara Delvingian or I might be pronouncing that right. I may be pronouncing that horribly wrong, Mm -hmm. Uh, but she, um, it stars them. And it's like a sci-fi space opera deal based on actually a, a French comic book series. Mm-hmm. And um, I enjoyed the movie. And, but I noticed something when I read the reviews for it. And I think how much people tend to enjoy this movie is how much they can accept Dane DeHaan as a lead actor. 
Because I don't have a problem with Dane DeHaan. I mean, I understand that he's like a grown man who looks like a, a permanent teenager. Uh, but, but still, Looking I... Looking him up. Yeah, no, no. Uh, he, he was, um, he was Harry Osborn in Amazing Spider-Man 2. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. He's okay. Bunch, he's also in Chronicle and other things. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. He's kind like, of, he's got a, he's got kind of a, 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 a sort of creepy look, you know? He does. And I'm, yeah. I'm sure that that, like, and from what I could get from reading the reviews, I, I feel like, like, whether or not you like that movie is going to depend on how you feel about Dane DeHaan as an actor. That is the, that is the impression I got from it. Which, well, did you believe him as an actor, or, or I'm, was it? I, I'm fine with Dane DeHaan. I think Dane DeHaan's an all right actor. Um, okay. I I haven't seen him in in uh, probably the best thing I've seen him in was Chronicle, mm-hmm. um, which uh, directed by Josh Trank. Um, now who also did the, um, the incredibly panned Fantastic Four movie uh, with Michael B. Jordan in it. <laughs> Which actually I will say, I've, I've, I was recently watching all the Fantastic Four movies, and I will say that despite how many problems that movie has, I think it has an absolutely baller cast. Mm, yeah. Like Michael B. Jordan, um, Miles Teller, uh, the guy who plays the thing, and I'm forgetting the girl's name too, but they're in a lot of stuff. Uh, but I actually thought the cast in that movie was really good. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a weird movie, though. Yeah. <laughs> like you could tell that the uh, you can tell the producers were messing with it. Yeah. Like oh. Yeah, that, that's unfortunately what happens a lot of the time with like with movies. They, the studio comes in and they're. They get their hands in it. Yeah. Yep. Um, uh, so getting back to Helena and Bottom Car- have Helena you Bottom. watched The Crown? I have not seen The Crown. Okay. Um, I, you might not like it. Um, I, don't, I don't know what your thoughts are on the British royal family and everything like that. I honestly, I honestly don't care about them like, from a tabloid perspective. But like... It- they're just the world's, you know, wealthiest welfare recipients. <laughs> Never thought of it that way. It's funny. Um, so it's a it's a Netflix series. The Crown is, and they it, basically it's about Queen Elizabeth's life. And yeah, I think they're on like the fourth or fifth season now. And the first two seasons they had actors playing the same cast, and it was like basically the forties, fifties, and maybe the sixties um like that time period so like they go through a lot of and it's it's historical but there's like the events are fictionalized um there was a uh there was an actor who played like and the cast changed like after the second season and they knew it was all going to change because they got older actors to play the older characters in in like because then you know you had the 70s in one and then like they got to the 80s and like the character who played princess diana was in it and everything like that so like that's what's the, kind of the story that's going on. But there was an actor who played Princess Margaret in the first two seasons. And then in season three, Helena Bottom Carter took over for it. And it made sense because Princess Margaret, I think the way the story is going is that she went from this sort of optimistic, very idealistic person to this very jaded cynic. And it made sense casting wise, but I just, 
I loved the actor who played Princess Margaret first. I got to look up her name. And then when it changed to Helena Bottom Carter, I was just like, man, I just really don't like Helena Bottom Carter in this role. <laughs> and I don't think Helena Bottom Carter did anything wrong or anything like that. But it was just like, I just enjoyed the previous actor in that part so much that when it changed, ah, it was just, it was hard for me to sort of shift mentally. And that was really the only part where that, where that did that, where there was a change like that. But anyways, if you haven't watched The Crown, it's kind of, um, um, kind of hard to have a point of reference about that. I understand. Yeah. Well. Yeah. But um, yeah. So we talked about actors acting. Who are you? Some of your just favorite actors, just just in general. Um, favorite. So like, I'm not. I tend not to be the type of person who like gets real hooked on the idea of like having favorites. But there are definitely a lot of actors. That, I can't believe I forgot to say this one. Um. Oh my god. I'm gonna mess up her name. Uh Christina Ricci. I like Christina Ricci also. Yeah, yeah. Um yeah. let's see here. I really enjoy Jason Statham. <laughs> Even though he has is he a- like a guilty pleasure? Because like you're almost pleasure. feeling like I almost get guilty- the, this the sense that you don't like saying you like Jason Statham. <laughs> it's a little bit of a guilty pleasure, but the thing I want to say about him is just that I understand he's a limit. His range is not incredible, but he never phones it in. No. Like Jason Statham gives it his all, even in the worst possible movies. What was that movie he was in where he had to like keep his adrenaline up like all the time or else he'd die? Crank. Crank. That movie was so much fun. Like it was such a stupid concept, but it was just a lot of fun. Yeah. Uh, He's, there's also Crank 2, which is even more ridiculous. Um, (laughs) And he's also in another concept action movie called Cellular, but he's the bad guy in that one. Okay. It stars Chris Evans and William H. Macy and Jason Statham. Oh, wow. And, okay. And I like that cast. Chris Evans is a... Uh, I wish I could remember who plays the, the, main, the main woman in it, but um, Chris Evans plays uh, a hap- hapless early 20s uh, sort of douche who uh who who's having trouble maturing or growing up and can't commit to things and then uh one day he's got a new cell phone and he's he's driving around and he gets a phone call from this woman who's been kidnapped and she's talking to him on a partially destroyed phone where she can't really dial without like she can't dial deliberately so she's like dialing random numbers by clicking like like the elect the lines together and um and so she doesn't want him to hang up, and like she convinces him that she's been kidnapped, and so he decides that he's gonna try and he has to help this woman. So he goes to a police station to try and get him to listen to the phone, but then like stuff happens, and the, like the concept of the film is that he's stuck on this phone with this woman, and like he's in order to save her, he's got to keep going on the cell phone, and like the like stuff starts to happen, like his cell phone starts to die, and so he has to he has to get a cell phone charger for it, and then like his cell phone connection accidentally intercepts with this other guy's like portable phone and suddenly like he's on the call and like yes he goes and steals that guy's phone and card like stay on the phone with this woman and it's 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 a pretty wild movie um it's kind of like kind of like phone booth or crank or speed it's that there's this one concept that's like driving the like suspense of it and then william h macy is the good cop who's about to retire and open a spa with his, his wife 
but like something about today just doesn't feel right, so he's got to find out what's going on. And then Jason Statham is plays one of the kidnappers. Mm, okay. Uh, so okay. yeah, it's yeah. A, it's it's a pretty. And I say good movie. I say good cop because it turns out like the kidnappers are cops. Uh, but uh, it's it's a fun little ride. Kind of sounds. Uh, I was getting a little bit of ransom in there. William with, uh, H Macy's a great actor too. I love William H Macy too. He's a great actor. He um he wrote this book. It's a really good book. It's called Practical. Well, he didn't write it, but he contributed to it. It's called The Practical Handbook for the Actor, and it's one of those like. If you're an early actor and like I assign it to my students to read, it's just sort of simple, basic, all right, here are the important things about the craft of acting, talking about action objective, you know, beats in a scene, um, and, you know, a little bit about characterizations and stuff like that. And it also, you know, it, it sort of stays away from getting into some of the the other problematic, like, parts of acting, which might be a good segue into talking about method acting and what that is and 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 all of that stuff all right real quick before we get into method acting i need to use the restroom real quick okay i i gotta get a drink too so we could that's a good that's a good pausing point all right all right here we go okay so method acting okay all right so and this is gonna sound just um I don't know, very preachy and pretentious. So I just want to preface this, but I just want to like, because there's a lot of misunderstandings and this is part of what I do when I teach people that I talk about acting and the process of acting and inevitably in any class that I have, whether it's the intro to acting with my uh, non-major students, or if it's the intro to theater class where I talk about, you know, theater history up to modern times, everybody talk, like asks like about like what is method acting so because there's a lot of misunderstandings about what it is and what it means and what actors do and everything like that um so let's start with Konstantin Stanislavski and I don't know on your podcast if you talked about Stanislavski at all um I feel like his name may have come up at some point um I of course uh who also went to school for theater have studied about Stanislavski and uh, not just his uh, his theories but also his uh, the history of his of his work a little bit although it has been over a decade since I graduated so we'll see what I remember right so um, Stanislavski he was a he was a, a Russian actor director producer um, just, he was sort of like a, a cosmopolitan sort of person um, he was also a wealth, he came from a family that had wealth. And um, he came up with this system. And what was going on with Stanislavski, he was an actor of like moderate success. And he was like intensely curious. He was like, what is the difference between a, a, a quote unquote good acting versus bad acting? Okay, so and he went through in a very 19th century sort of way, documented and wrote down in a scientific way, like what he thought, like people did the processes that they went through and and sort of just like really documented and wrote down like what acting was. And he came out with like these books and one of them was an actor prepares and then building a character. 
and then it got combined into like two books or it combined into a book called an actor's work and basically it's like diary entries from him as he's going through his process of acting training and like the things that he's experiencing and he came up with this system okay and this system covers all kinds of things it, co- it covers like physicality covers improvisation psychological um you know action objective uh beats breaking down a script and characterizations and 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 all and and voice and all of this stuff and it really sort of just lists out like what he felt if actors were to do these sort of things this is what would lead to better performances so he started this theater group Moscow Art Theater and they were working predominantly with Anton Chekhov who is a playwright well Moscow Art Theater comes over to the United States i think like sometime in the 1920s and they perform a bunch of plays and they perform it in front of a bunch of american actors and directors and theater artists and the the people who were watching it were just blown away by just how natural and realistic the acting was. It was a totally different acting style. They hadn't seen anything like this before. And what ended up happening is a lot of the Russian actors who were in the Moscow Art Theater ended up staying behind in America for various reasons. And they worked with these American uh, theater artists. And these American theater artists eventually formed what's called the group theater. And the group theater is where you had people like Lee Strasberg, Sanford Meisner, Stella Adler, Robert Lewis, uh, Ilya Kazan, like a bunch of big names. And the group theater started like in like the 1930s. So they worked with, in, with Stanislavski. They got trained in his system. And then a lot of these artists in the group theater sort of took parts and elements of Stanislavski's system that they found appealed to them a little bit and and they sort of it sort of morphed into their own quote unquote method and this is where method acting comes from method acting was really sort of started by this guy his name was lee strasberg and what method acting is and like whatever acting technique you always use acting it it's always supposed to get people to act truthfully in imaginary circumstances Okay, that's what the objective of any actor is in any play that they're doing. Act truthfully, behave truthfully in imaginary circumstances. So Lee Strasberg really took this part of Stanislavski's system, which was um, emotional memory or affective memory. And basically what that does is it says, okay, um, any emotional sort of experience that you had in your real life, you use that in your work. Okay, so if your character is going through a breakup with your significant partner, okay, remember the emotions and the feelings you felt when you went through a breakup in your real life and use that, which that is really all that method acting really is. And and Lee Strasberg still believed in action objective. He still believed in, you know, a lot of the important things that came out of Stanislavski's system. The problem with effective memory and emotional memory. And actually Stanislavski later on in his life went back and said that effective emotional memory uh, is kind of dangerous because it makes actors basically in the basket cases because you're having to deal with all of these problems, all these emotional issues that you've dealt with in your past. And the other part about it that doesn't really work is 
as we grow as human beings, as actors grow as human beings, like the way that you feel about things that have happened in your past changes over time. And this is something that Sanford Meisner talked about. And this is why he, he also thought that emotional memory is a little dangerous because like, okay, if you broke up with somebody and it happened six months ago, you feel differently about that six months after the fact versus how you feel about it 10 years after the fact. So because your attitude about things that happen sort of changed. So the way that you look back on things like, okay, I don't feel the same way that I felt about this. So me using that scenario in my personal life to bring it into my work, eh, I, I'm not going to, I'm not going to feel the same. And also if I try to feel the same, I'm going to just be a basket case, just trying to dig up and recut open like these wounds and everything like that. And I'm sorry, I've done enough psychological work with my counselor that I don't need to be doing that shit anymore. Um, but it brings a level of personalization into the work that you're doing, which is something that um, is important. Like my acting teachers call it the magic if. Like if Dean was in this scenario, how would he react to this sort of situation? So that's a way of sort of putting yourself into the role and making it truthful, okay? But getting back to method acting, Part of what has also become this whole thing of like what Hollywood calls method acting is like extreme weight loss, people who go around and they uh, like they don't quote unquote break character, you have to refer to them as the character's name when they're on set. And those are all like extreme yeah. things that actors do. It should be noted that like some stage actors do these things too, but it's much less common. It's much less common, right. But they are taking aspects of quote-unquote methods. And I say quote-unquote method because a method is just a, a, a technique, a, a thing that you use, okay? So like if you're like before a scene or before a play or something like that, uh, you listen to music and that helps you get into the character or maybe you do a yoga flow or anything like that, that is your method. So you have a quote unquote method, but you're not just doing the method. That's why I kind of have a, an issue with that term method, because I don't know what it means anymore. And it also has sort of changed from what the original method acting from Lee Strasberg is, you know, it, it, it's, it's, it's sort of changed and it's added on these other things like improvising in character. That was actually something that Lee Strasberg was not a fan of. He didn't think that that was actually a good thing, which I actually... I disagree with. I think that improvising in character is extremely beneficial. I think though that actors take it too far, especially on film sets when like, you know, uh, they're, they're having everybody refer to them as their character's name. I think that's just a little ridiculous. But I will say though, when you're on a film set and you're doing a scene and okay, this scene is really good and there's a lot of heightened emotions and everything like that and everything's kind of clicking and the feelings are happening. Okay, cut. All right, we need to change the lights in the set and everything like that. And we're going to take 20 minutes to set up the lights and the camera and everything over this shoulder because we need to get this shot. Film, shooting a 15-minute scene in a, 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 can take like multiple days. You know, like even like a five, six, seven-minute scene take, can take like all day of shooting because you have to get the lights, you have to get the sound, you have to get everything working. And like, 
you know, those cuts and takes from different angles, those are all usually them doing different takes of the same scene, just they have to set everything up at different angles. So it takes, shooting a film takes a long time. Now, if you're an actor and you're really in it and the scene is going on and everything's going great, it's like, man, I got all these juices going and everything's going great. And now they have to like, now I have a break where I have to go back and, you know, be Dean for 20 minutes. Like that's, that's hard to do as an actor because then you have to, you have to turn it on and turn it off really quickly. And a lot of actors can do that, you know, but some actors can't, it's difficult. You know what I mean? Because like you have the actors that are like, you know, laughing and joking and everything like that. And then they could just say when action happens, then they can tear their sort of eyes out crying and their, their soul out and rip their guts out sort of emotional sort of scene. Not all actors are like that. And some of them, they need to do like the emotional prep and they need to kind of keep themselves in this sort of state where it's like, okay, uh, I, I just kind of, I, I got to put up a wall around me of like what's going on. And I just kind of need to stay in this feeling or this set or in this, however this character is feeling at this moment, because it's hard. It's hard to do that. Mm -hmm. So improvising in character or staying in character while things are happening, I don't have a problem with. Uh, I, I've actually done it myself on a, on a film set one time because exactly that situation is happening. Like I, I could have went over and talked to some of the film crew or something like that and started joking and everything, but then I would have to go back and get back into it. And I was like, no, let me just stay back here. I'm going to go over my lines. Uh, you know, I'm in this headspace right now. I'm really feeling it. I'm in it. I don't want to break out of it because then I have to get back into it. Some people may say, well, you're not a good actor for, because you, you can't turn it on and off at the switch of a light. And I'm like, I, I disagree with you. It's just the way that I work versus the way that some other people work. Some people can cry on command. I can't do that. Mm -hmm. I, it takes a lot for me to cry on command. I, it takes a lot for me to do that. I will. And, and like to, to play sort of a devil's advocate here. Um, I mean, like the one thing is, is that these, uh, these people who do some of the people who do this staying in character the whole time thing, are some of our most um, recognized and awarded uh, actors like Daniel Day-Lewis. Right. Who, like but, some people would say he's crazy for doing it, but he has gotten results. Right, exactly. And like, I think at the end of the day, it, I, I don't care what people do, it, whatever they have to do, because it's their art and they should be in control of artists of how they, how they do their art. Um, as long as you're not causing harm to others. That is the big thing. Don't be a dick. Don't cause harm to others. Don't put other people in physical harm. So like if Daniel Day-Lewis wants to put on a hat and, and, and pretend like he's his character from Gangs of New York and walk out the streets of New York, like that's fine. I've actually, I kind of did that one time. Um, I, uh, I, I was doing this, I was doing this play. Um, it was a Sam Shepard play. And um I, I just thought, I was like, let me go to a bar, let me get a drink, and let me just be Jake while I'm at this bar and getting a drink. And I almost got into a fight. And like, oh I was like, yeah. And I was like, okay. I, <laughs> I, I went back to my place, and I was actually staying in Akron at the time. And I went to a bar in Highland Square. This is where this happened. <laughs> and I, I went back to my place, and I was like, okay, I'm not, I'm not doing that again. 
Um, but like improvising in character is, is good for me as an actor. I like doing that because it helps fill in the gaps. Yeah. Like I get like the inner monologue of the character. How does the character behave when he's not speaking the lines that are in the script or he's not on stage or whatever. And I think it, that, that improvising is, is a beneficial tool. And it's something that Stanislavski used. It's just that his Stanislavski, the way that he employed it, is like people would get in the living room and then they would just talk about how their characters would act in oh. person. Whereas like Meisner did more of improv improvs in character and like there were real exercises where you actually were the character on stage, which is a is a, is is it's more real. It's like you're experiencing it, so it's it's more beneficial in my mind. Mm-hmm. Um, so like, but like like I said before, that whole thing and the extreme weight loss and everything like that, like that wasn't really a part of what Lee Strasberg talked about, like method acting. Because like you see actors doing it nowadays, like Christian Bale did it. Um, a lot of actors go through physical, like big physical changes oh, yeah. in order to play the parts that they do, and like that's cool. Like Natalie Portman. I heard she put on like a ton of weight and she got super jacked to play like oh, yeah. she, her part. Uh, and like, well, that's not, that to me is not method acting. That is you just physically portraying a character truthfully, which physicality is an important part of being an actor. And it, it, it's, it's, it's more than just like emotionally, like psychologically getting in depth with the cat. It's how you carry yourself, how you yes. move, you know? Absolutely. Which is a part of acting that I sometimes feel like goes over the head of uh, of some of the the average uh, people on the street watching uh, watching stuff. Yeah, the physicality of acting as well. Right, um, and I mean it, it's it's yeah. When you see somebody who's like uh, playing, God, I'm trying to think of a good example of somebody who like okay, Joaquin Phoenix and Joker like really sort of transformed himself physically. And so like a lot of people gave him props about just how he moved and his body physicality and everything like that. But like, you don't hear a lot of people talking about Keanu Reeves about how he physically moves through movies and how he portrays characters because Keanu Reeves is actually very good at controlling his body as different characters. And if you watch his characters, like very distinct clear choices and he's very different in every movie and and how he sort of carries himself it's absolutely true and like uh this is is a thing we've talked about before but like i think it's something that might uh might might blow some young people's minds is that back back in the day in the 90s um people did not respect keanu reeves nearly as much as they do now nope he was uh, he was considered that uh, that pretty boy who couldn't act but kept getting movies. Right, right. But like you know, I mean, he was he was sort of seen as like okay, he's the surfer kind of you know like Bill and Ted. Yeah, excellent man. You know, like that was this character. And anytime he tried to step out of that, people were like, no, 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 no. this isn't this is <laughs> this isn't right. Um, and, then, and then the movie he became most famous for after that was The Matrix, and it's. Everything after that is kind of ancient history. <laughs> right, right. But like, you know, and Keanu Reeves, again, don't be a dick. Keanu Reeves is one of the nicest people in Hollywood uh, from what all the stories that I heard. And oh, yeah. y- you can critique his talent, you, you know, in some of the movies all you want, but the dude still gets hired. People go see his movies and he's a really good person to work with. And like uh, Kenneth Branagh, 
Yeah. He cast Keanu Reeves in a, a, a Much Ado About Nothing film version of Much Ado, which is a Shakespeare play that they made into a movie. And like Keanu Reeves was cast in it. And like, they were like, why did, why did you cast Keanu Reeves? And Kenneth Branagh is like, he's one of the hardest working actors in, in the business. And I knew that if I would cast him, he would do his work. He would come in with a lot of choices. He would know his lines. And he's just a, a good person to work with. Why would I not cast him, you know? Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. Um, and that's like, uh, back in the 90s, I think people got hung up on the fact that Keanu Reeves just didn't have a every average... He did not have a very regular voice. Yeah. His, his speech mannerisms and whatnot were, uh, uh, might have been confusing for a lot of, for a lot of people. Right. And, and the thing was, is you talk about voice and the actors control the voice. And Stanislavski talked about like the voice actually being one of the most important parts. Is having clear command and control of your voice is actually very important. And that's where like, if you look at the different sort of, okay, you have the American style of acting, which was really sort of stems out of a lot of like the Stanislavski system and like emotional effective memory and method acting. But then you had the British system, which was really focused on language and speech and rhetoric. And now you have the British actors who've sort of adopted sort of the American system of like getting emotionally connected and personalizing with characters. And they still have that great understanding of language. Naturally, a lot of British actors are getting the bigger parts over American actors because American actors are typically thought of as just being lazy and relying on their personality and relying on like, yeah, I'm going to feel it in the moment. I'm just going to feel it in the moment. And then, you know, they don't have technique to rely on when the feelings and the moments don't happen. There are a lot of British actors now making a lot, making American movies. Um, yeah. Actually, I was just thinking about it when you were talking about some of that is uh, Benedict Cumberbatch is real big in America now. Yep. And he was just in that movie. Um, uh, what is it? Something about the dog. Uh, some uh, The cowboy movie. Uh, with him and uh, and Kirsten Dunst are in it. Um, Way of the Dog, something like that. Hair of the Dog. Um, I don't know, but um, essentially, <laughs> like the the idea behind the story is that uh, he's like uh, a cowboy, and he works with his brother, and then his brother marries uh, Kirsten Dunst's character, and um, and and like Benedict Pump. Cumberbatch's character is just like toxically masculine uh, towards her. Mm-hmm. Um, and Benedict Cumberbatch has talked about how when they did the when when they how him and Kristen Dunst did not hang out at, at all during the making of the movie. Like they both actively made the choice to like create that distance between themselves because there's that distance between their characters. Yeah. And C- Benedict Cumberbatch actually here's two funny uh, I examples of char- uh, of actors trying to go hardcore making choices they regretted uh bendick cumberbatch decided to do the thing where he would bathe about as much as a cowboy would um while making the film and <laughs> but he he realized this was problematic because he would be leaving the sets and they they'd want to go get dinner or something and and he would still smell like a cowboy <laughs> like wherever they went and um also recently, Paul Dano, another another incredibly talented actor, um, who played the Riddler in the Batman movie, 
uh, was the guy who came up with the idea of the Riddler wrapping his head in cellophane to prevent, like, leaving behind evidence. Mm -hmm. And he was like, after he did that, he was like, that was a mistake. (laughs) It's like, because when you wrap yourself in cellophane, the the sweat has nowhere to go. (laughs) So he's like, you just, it's just trapped in there with you. And you're just, you're just. Jeez. So, yeah. And, and you know what, like, and. In Benedict, in Benedict Cumberbatch's sort of situation, kind of getting back to what I was saying, I was like, you know, if that's something that he felt like he had to do in order to get more connected to the character, like, I guess that's fine. Did he need to do that? I don't know. The proof is in the results. Like, was his performance more believable? Also, was he being a dick to other people? I don't know. Body odor? <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like, is that like, you are affecting my space. And my and my uh, and my comfort with where I'm at with your with your body odor, um, so I I don't you know I don't know, yeah. um, but I, I do think that like the other the other problem with, and this is sort of goes along with the Hollywood glamorization of, of method acting is is it's sort of allowed for just like bad behaviors, mm-hmm. like oh yeah we got drunk for four days straight and you know i had i really got me into portraying this you know uh, this character because i you know was sleep deprived and i got drunk and it's like okay or or like actors who take things too far with their uh with their female castmates too like um oh yeah we really need to like experience this sexual like energy with each other and you know i think we should like we should we should do it you know we should we should have sex with each other just so that we really get the the feeling of what it's like and it's like ah do you really need to do that um do you just kind of imagine what it was like and i'm not saying that like showmances don't happen you know or like you 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 get on stage with a with a with a with another actor that's actually how i met at least one of my girlfriends like you're doing a show with somebody and the characters are supposed to fall in love and then there's these weird sort of uh emotions that sort of bleed off stage and then it kind of turns into a showmance and like that's that could be uh, that could be good bad indifferent it typically turns out bad uh but there are some times where like you know uh, actors they met on set and they fell in love and they lived happily ever after or they you know had a good marriage for a number of years and then they got divorced you know it's I, I, I don't know. People are people. People have different ways of, of meeting. And yeah. sometimes when, when you're acting and you're thrown around those sort of feelings and emotions, stuff like that, things happen, you know, things happen. Um, but again, as always, consent is always important. Of course. Yeah, uh, um, yeah no, I, I know what you mean, though. Like, that is that is the question. Like, where where, where do you draw the line? <laughs> as as like actors and whatnot um and like it, it is interesting because like acting as like a thing you do is like like this this is gonna sound this is gonna sound um it's gonna sound overly simplistic or like i'm de um like i'm devaluing some of the things we've said but like on a certain level if if you can read and say lines and not sound like a like a monotonal asshole, you can probably do acting. Right. Uh, no, I, you you know like honestly, and that's the thing I tell my students all the time is like you can overcomplicate the shit out of this, 
And sometimes I think that like all of these different systems of acting and everything like that, like really get into actors' heads. And sometimes you just got to fucking forget that shit and just memorize the lines and say them truthfully. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and with, with a, my acting teacher would say with a modicum of feeling, you know what I mean? But I, you're right. Sometimes it's just, you, you just got to be able to memorize your lines, have the, the balls to stand up and balls. Okay. Have the guts to stand up in front of uh, a group of people and to deliver them truthfully. And if you're brave enough, you're courageous enough to do that. That's, 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 that's really all it is, you know, and all of that other shit, you know, fucking forget about it and just get up there and tell the truth. Cause you know, we can complicate acting. It's, it is, it's simple, but it isn't easy. Yeah. That's, that's a good way to put it. That's a good way to put it. It is simple, but it isn't easy. Right. And improv, I mean, public speaking, improv and and all that shit, like, like, God, man. So I really admire people who can, who can improvise, like, you know, with like uh, improv performance and everything like that. I know that we were in a group together, but like, that is still an area that I still like, I I still want to work on and, and everything like that. It's definitely like not necessarily a strength of mine, but I do enjoy doing it. But I will say that like, I am so much more comfortable on my feet as a performer because of improv experience. And I I know that that was one of my big fears. That was one of the reasons why I didn't get into acting, uh, even though I had a desire to when I was younger, was I was just afraid of getting up in front of people and speaking. But somewhere along the line, I I just said, fuck it. And I just, I just really want to try this. Um, But uh, improv, improv sort of helps with controlling and managing your fear. That's a good way to put it. Yeah. The way I I view it is that like, once you start to learn improv, it kind of like, it's kind of like acting body armor. Because, like, what improv allows you to do is to be able to be present and alive in your performances. It's kind of like, and I don't know if you had to read this book uh, when you went to school, but uh, for acting, I mean. Um, It's like that uh, Empty Spaces by, uh, like, Peter Brooks, where he talks about, where he talks about um, raw theater and, I'm sorry, no, rough theater and holy theater and deadly theater. Mm-hmm. And like essentially the difference between the 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 rough and the, the and the and the holy and the deadly is the is how alive and present it is because deadly theater is described as essentially an attempt at a recreation mm-hmm. an attempt at just recreating the same story or the same piece or the same performance in this way that is very um, manufactured. Whereas holy theater is recognizing the art that is in it, but still giving it that same level of effort and detail, but in a way that is artistically alive Mm -hmm. um, and unique to that specifically construction of that, of that classic piece. Or, of course, there's rough theater, and rough theater covers things like um, 
poetry readings and punk shows and stand-up comedy and improv shows and and sketch nights or any type of theater where it's just raw and in your face and it's more about how alive it is now than how planned or constructed it is. Mm. Mm-hmm. Which I kind of felt like that that was, um, like, I, I think that that was sort of what we tried to do with Just Go With It. And I, and I, and I was really happy to be involved with the Akron art scene at that time uh, because I felt like that that's what they tried to do um, at the electric pressure cooker as well. That, the open mic nights just like anything goes like I talk about that with a lot of like my artist friends like I live in Atlanta Georgia right now um and they all love that idea like just like a sort of like an anything goes open mic where people can do whatever they want it's just like that it was it was it's a, a really cool idea it was a really cool time to be alive and to be a part of that scene in Akron and um yeah rough theater man theater just just you know because sometimes you need that yeah you know you need that you you could be so like you know you could be so even within within acting you could be so structured and so you know like like we were talking about before working with directors who are more controlling and you feel like you're just like a cog in the machine well man let me just let me just get out and just kind of you know feel a little bit you know let's get out there and not worry about all this shit and let's just Throw some throw some shit on the wall and see what sticks, you know. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, that yeah. is that is that is the joy of like, because that that is the thing is that ru- theater is alive, and it's not like other forms of of art like uh, like film or paintings, where it's about capturing a, like where it's about capturing this sort of like thing. And holding it in this like place where you can see it and and touch it and hear it and whatnot. Whereas live theater, being there is just as much part of the art and the experience as any of the work that that goes into it. Mm-hmm. Sharing time with the audience. Um, yeah. That. Um, that's something that I that I tell my students all the time about sharing time with the audience. It's why it's important to actually go see the shows. Um, you know, watching like uh, during COVID when Disney Plus put Hamilton on, like I watched it and I was like, it was great. It was impressive. I was able to sort of watch everything that was going on. Really cool, really great performances. I, I want to see it live. You know, like just that experience has got to be different. It's not the same as watching a, a a taped live theater show is not the same as actually being there. You got to be there. You got to be breathing along the same air with the actors. And there's that magic zone. I forget there's a name for it too. It's where the audience and the, the actors meet. And it's like somewhere in between the stage and in and, and, and the house of the audience. And it's just where, that's where all the magic happens. And it's, oh man, I'm talking about this missing live theater, man. I haven't done a show in like almost three years now. It's been a long time since I did a stage show. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I do improv and, and stand up and stuff. Uh, like, well, I do improv all the time and I do stand up like off and on mm-hmm. periodically. Um, but, uh, but it has been a while since I've actually like 
gone in and auditioned for a play and 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 put in the time to be part of that show it has been a while for that i would love to direct you in something oh yeah yeah man i i sure no i'd love do you have any do you have any bucket list roles Okay, so, like, I don't know how realistic any of my bucket list roles are, but have you ever seen, um, it's, oh, okay, I remember the title. It's a Tracy Letts show that was actually made into a movie starring uh, Matthew McConaughey. Uh, but I would love to be in Killer Joe. Oh, yeah, 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 I've heard of uh, Killer Joe, yeah. Yeah, um, specifically, I would like to play Matthew McConaughey's role. <laughs> okay, I haven't read it. Um, I haven't, I mean, I haven't seen the stage version. I've only seen the movie, but when I found out it was a stage, it was based on a stage play, yeah. it was a part of me was like, that's a role I'd love to play on stage. Yeah. Well, you know, unless there's something specific in that Tracy Letts wrote that this guy needs to look this way or this character needs to look this way. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, Marlon Brando played Stanley Kowalski in Streetcar Named Desire. Like, if you look at Tennessee Williams' description of Stanley Kowalski, it is not Marlon Brando. <laughs> it is not, uh, like, Stanley Kowalski, he's, he's kind of, he kind of described him as sort of like a short and compact. So I'm getting sort of like the idea of like more of like a stout, like, uh, like a, like a like a like a shorter stouter thicker sort of like person you know marlon brando's like you know at the time he was sort of lean and muscular i don't know how tall brando was but like i think he's probably you know he's probably a you know normal average height 510 or something like that but he also kind of moved like marlon brando had like like he moved sort of in a way that was a little bit more uh I would say more like cat-like uh, as Stanley Kowalski. And, and, and it didn't, it, but <laughs> Marlon Brando's portrayal of Stanley Kowalski was so brilliant that Tennessee Williams loved him. The director, Elia Kazan loved him, who Elia Kazan was also part of group theater. Um, interestingly enough, getting back to method acting, Marlon Brando actually did, would not and did not consider himself to be a method actor because he didn't think that like the Lee Strasberg system like was like benefited him at all. Marlon Brando was more of under under the Stella Adler system. And Stella Adler was another member of the group theater. And she actually bitterly fought with Lee Strasberg. And Lee Strasberg was kind of a dick towards women anyways. Um, but um Stella Adler had a really hard time with emotional memory and she, it didn't work for her. And she actually met up with Stanislavski, Stanislavski over in Paris, like before Stanislavski passed away. And she sat down and talked with him and she said, you know, emotional memory, it's not working for me. She's like, I'm trying to understand your system and everything, but it's just this part of it's not working. And Stanislavski said at that point in his career, he sort of rejected emotional memory. And he was like, eh, you, got, you can't really do it. It's more about action objective. It's more about, you know, uh, beats in the scene and really finding like the magic if of like, okay, if I were in this character's shoes, this is how I would react. Or using your creative imagination to get yourself to there. Like 
which I think has to happen in a, in a lot of shows, especially period pieces, you know, it's really fucking hard to method act a Shakespeare play. You know what I mean? Cause like, what, what the fuck am I going to do? How am I going to method act a Shakespeare play? You know, how am I going to go about and sort of recreate a uh, Hamlet? I'm I sorry. I'm not, a, I'm not a, I'm not a, I'm not an 11th century Danish prince. And I really can't recreate that to really get like the vibe and the emotions of, of, of Hamlet. Like, it just allow me to remember what it's like to hold a sword. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Never hold a sword? No, never held a sword. Um, but anyways, getting back to it, uh, I, Reuben Ryan as in, in the play Killer Joe. Hey, if you can fucking do it, fucking do it, man. Okay. And if you find a connection to that, to that part, to that, uh, if you read that script, you find a connection to that character, you can make it work. Don't let anybody get in your way, man. I feel like I think I think I feel like a lot of times I just look at characters and be like, I feel like that'd be fun to play. <laughs> well, I mean that that's. It, 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 do you look at characters and you're like, yeah, that wouldn't be so fun to play? Um, I mean, like, it's not so much that. Like, um, I, I rarely have a like a negative reaction to the idea of playing a character. It's more like characters stand out to me as being a fun character to play if that makes any sense yeah, yeah. um but uh yeah i don't know i i also am the type of person who is always amused by the i i'm always someone who's like there's a part of me that wants to know what other people would cast me in is a <laughs> thought that comes to my mind a lot where like sometimes for me that's like, I rarely go into an audition going, man, that's a part I really want to play in this. And I'm more like, yeah, let's see what part they put me in. Uh, but, uh, okay, wait, actually, I just had another one. Willy Wonka. I'd love to play Willy Wonka. That would be, that would be fun. I don't, I, I, the, the musical? Uh, probably not a musical version. Yeah. Oh, I, I guess I, I don't know how many songs he actually sings. Um, maybe, I could, I could, I could do that thing he says on the boat. I'm, I, I know that. I don't. Yeah. Know. I don't know if that part is in the musical version. I've only seen Willy Wonka Jr. Ah, <laughs> so probably. I don't know if that was abbreviated or if that was changed. Junior or versions of things normally are abbreviated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. What I find. I, I mean, dude, why? I, Willy Wonka is kind of um, clowny. Yeah. I I would I would cast you as a clown. Okay. Um, it, it, you know, like a like a Shakespeare clown. I think I told you this before. I oh, would, okay. I, yeah, I could probably do a Shakespeare clown. I but like you know that's sort of I I know you're a very physical actor. Mm-hmm. Um, although I didn't see it as much because you had your issue with your um, with your knee. Mm-hmm. So and actually, I haven't seen you physically performing in probably like four or five years, are you back to a hundred percent yet? Um, technically speaking, after having my knee replaced, I don't know if I'll ever be at a hundred percent. Um, like I'm not really supposed to do things like run. Mm. Um, well, that's not true. I can run, but I'm not supposed to do high impact exercises like treadmills or like distance running. Okay. Um, also, like, my leg just doesn't bend the same way as another person's, so, like, running looks weird. Okay. Uh, but, um, 
And there is always the possible, like, if I ever were to fall down, I don't want my leg to go under me. Um, yeah. Because if my leg were to bend fully, there's a very, I have been told that my kneecap would basically be shot out of my leg. Ooh. 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 So, I mean, I just, I assume that's not like a hundred percent thing, but apparently that's a possibility if I were to fall on my leg. That's that's not something anybody wants to go through. Oh my god, that sounds terrifying. Yeah. So okay, so so maybe maybe it wouldn't be a physical clown. Maybe it would be kind of a. I can still do some things. I can I can still roll around and walk silly. Okay. 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 Um, uh, okay. Will, so Willy Wonka. Um, yeah. What, what, what other, what other parts? Anything else coming to mind? Um, hmm. Let's see here. What would be, what else would be? Yeah. Willy. So let's see here. We've got Killer Joe and Willy Wonka so far. Um, trying to think of any specific shows of really great parts in them that aren't coming to my head right now. Um, In terms of stage shows, I would definitely say that those are are two of the bigger ones that I think would be really fun to do. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, with your look you've got going on right now, mm -hmm. I mean, you're, you're kind of screaming like a, like maybe an Ibsen play or a uh, maybe a Chekhov play. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. I I would be up to do some Chekhov. Yeah. I thought Chekhov was pretty interesting when I was studying him in him in college. He reminds yeah. me. He reminds me of. He reminds me kind of of Wes Anderson. Like, like when I read his plays, like there's like this sort of like dry, sad humor through the whole thing. Oh yeah. Oh, oh, God, yes, 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 yes. So, like, um, that's that's what I always think of when I when I read Chekhov. It's like this sort of like very, very dry humor that's going very dark, very dark humor too. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, that's that's I that is an accurate sort of perception, and I think that that's kind of what Chekhov was going for was sort of more the the ironies of life yeah. sort of thing, and just in the shared experience and like it, that sort of play. Like that style of playwriting was, that was different for the time. Oh, yeah. Because, I mean, before that time, everything was just big and epic, you know, like Shakespeare all the way through, you know, uh, probably the 18th century, a lot of those things were, and there were like morality plays that were still being done and yeah. like just, just really weird things. And, and Chekhov and, and Ibsen kind of came out around the same time. And both of those were just like, okay, let's, Let's focus more on natu- realistic natural relationships, realistic, like what do people really go through? Mm-hmm. And getting back to our conversation about Stanislavski, that's what his system really helps with is grounding performances in reality. And Stanislavski was a big fan, actually, of Sigmund Freud, of like psychology and everything like that. Well, that so makes sense, yeah. That sort of informed his work 
and like, okay, what is the internal sort of psychology of the characters and how does this work within the material that we're trying to write? Because that's a hard thing to do, like, you know, to make just regular everyday life interesting enough to put it, to want to put it on stage. So there still has to be characters and situations that people identify with. There still has to be drama and comedy and humor and everything that's put into those situations. So, and I think that that's also probably through the lens of a, of a Russian <laughs> writing during that time period. Yeah. You know what I mean? Modernism. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, man. Uh, whatever I think of Henrik Ibsen is an interesting, interesting writer. I, I, cause in college I, I had to read, um, Hedda Gabler and, uh, at some point I read the dollhouse mm-hmm. and like, I, like what's interesting to me is that like he's often cited as like a, a real step forward in writing women in theater, uh, which is which is kind of funny also because like like at the same time like if I had to describe like his film his not his films his uh, his plays like I'd be like okay so yeah they're they're about a very angry woman uh, who's gonna do terrible things to the people around her and uh, typically there's like a really nice woman who she's gonna totally screw over. And that's, that, that's, that's, well, okay. So here's the thing. Here's no, the thing. Like it was in terms of parts to play, they were meatier, juicier, better roles. Well, th- that also, and cause I, I had to do a, an Ibsen scene and we had a whole section of Ibsen in graduate school and it was just, uh, I, yeah, I don't want to talk about it. It, it was, it's <laughs> So I, I, one of the scenes that I did was from, from Hedda Gabler. And um, so we had to do it like some research on Ibsen at the time. And the thing is, is during the time, during that time period, women did not talk to, they were not portrayed on stage to be talking to male characters that way. Like the, the characters in the show would not talk to other males that way. So these plays were revolutionary in that they portrayed women in a way that totally broke the norms and the expectations and the the values of that time period. People were getting in fights outside of Ibsen plays because the, the audiences were so stirred emotionally. They couldn't believe what they saw and how dare they put that upstage. Well, then, no, this is this is like, this is actually, you know, how it really is. And women should be, should have these rights to stand up to their mother, a doll's house, like this um, overbearing, oppressive husband that's keeping her wife in line. And the wife is just, you know, she's dealing with all the shit. And yeah, at the end of a doll's house, she just kind of goes off on it. And I, I forget what happens at the end of the dollhouse. Does she kill somebody? I um, do remember. I, I, I remember Hedda Gabler better, to be honest with you. Yeah. And like Hedda Gabler also was this, this, this woman who was just in this male oppressed society, oppressing, uh, oppressed society this entire time. And she's just this, and she had this, this, this partner, this teacher who comrade, whatever they were, they had this really special relationship and okay, what was that? And it did it awaken something in her and who was this guy? And then what she did and who she married and just like being in part of it is sexual liberation. And, you know, at the time it was extremely revolutionary oh, yeah. and it, it was, it, Ibsen was for, 
like I said, for his time, I, I think, I think it was, it, it was more than just uh, angry women. I, I, I yeah, it, it was angry women, but I think the women had oh, a, no, no. More, a lot, a lot more, a lot more depth than that. And actually Ibsen characters typically are, are very contradictory and very uh, deep in terms of like, um, to be clear, I, I didn't mean to, to imply that they were shallow characters. They were, they're definitely not shallow characters. They're very um, detailed, rich characters. Very complex, just, yeah, yeah. They're just not nice people. <laughs> I, 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 don't, I don't agree with that. I, it's, I, don't th- I think it's, you know, I think that's, a, I don't know. I think that's a judgment. I'm not saying their words. anger is unjustified. I'm not saying it's unjustified. I just, <laughs> like, the actions they take um result in like so much um just like so much anger and loss and like damage to other characters that like there's that like if you if you were to give it an unfair reading it would be easy to say that these people were villains right i i do kind of agree with that but i will also say if they would have just acted normal and rational there wouldn't be. Why would we watch it? <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. That's fair. There wouldn't be a play if she didn't burn the manuscript or whatever. Whatever happens in the dollhouse, I can't remember. Uh, I think that because um, I, I thought burning the manuscript was head of Gabler. I I could be mixing them up. I think it is because yeah, I think she was she was married to an author. Mm-hmm. Um, that was what the guy did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now that that is exactly what happened. Um, so. Yeah, man. Um, I could definitely see you in, in uh, you know, I, uh, maybe a Torvald. Um, okay. Uh, yeah, yeah, maybe a Torvald. Maybe a uh, um, uh, who did who did Hedda Gabler marry? I do not remember. I can't remember the guy's name. Maybe her husband, the the, the other writer. Because mm-hmm. um, uh, the other guy, oh God, I forget his name. Like the love interest, Loveberg. Like literally, his name is Loveberg. Um, um, like, uh, that character actually is, I think, supposed to be reminiscent of, uh, a callback to the, uh, Dionysus. Oh. In, um, uh, in The God, but also in, um, whatchamacallit, what was, oh, what was the play? What was the play time? Uh, The Bacchae. Um, Greek plays, uh, epic, you know? Oh, yeah. yeah, man. The, um, the class, classical period. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, any, anyways. Um, yeah, because, like, there was, there was, like, there was a description of Loveberg, like, Hedda Gabler said something like, he probably had vines in his hair or something like that. And that was very much a callback to uh, Dionysus. Nice. Yeah. So I, I kind of think like Gone of the Wind, Gone with the Wind reminds me of like Henrik Ibsen to a degree, but almost like inverted. Like it almost ends in the opposite way, as like it's... like 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 how to put it like like in a Henrik Ibsen play. I feel like the woman would be in Rhett Butler's position at the end. But they're like, I don't give a damn. 
I, th I think you're, I think you're right. I actually, that's, I've never thought of that before. Um, but that makes sense. Ibsen's effect on, on just writing, not only for plays, stage plays, but eventually what became, because like, I mean, theater was before film and all of the, the playwrights eventually started writing scripts for movies. Like there was a transition that happened and all those people were all influenced by Chekhov and Ibsen. So that totally makes a hundred percent sense. Oh yeah. You know, and you even see it, you even see it now, um, you know, in a lot of modern, uh, modern uh, like movies and scripts, that uh, TV shows that come out today. I think TV shows that come out today are actually, um, the writing, because before TV was kind of seen as like the cheap alternative, um, where like film, that was where like, art was done. Now it seems like all of the good writing and the good character building and everything like that is happening on TV and on TV. Uh, but in film is, is kind of become more of like, you know, you don't have that great character building anymore. A lot of it is special effects driven, you know, et cetera, you know? I think part of that is because we're living in a period where serial storytelling has become... The value of serial storytelling has has sort of been unlocked. Like yeah. serial storytelling has been around for a very long time, mm -hmm. uh, ever since funnies and comic books and 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 TV and serials and stuff. Serials uh, is a, was was a great f part of like film. Like people would go and watch. Oh was, yeah. you know the, those old serials. They would, it would and then they were only like fifteen twenty minutes. They would go to the theater and they watch this. Like you know what I mean? Like. Oh, yeah. yeah. Anyways, that, that's a that's a forgotten part of cinema history, or the uh, the old serials. But when TV first, um, TV for a long time had focused on episodic storytelling, which mm -hmm. is um, always going to have its its limitations. Mm -hmm. And even in like, even even in like standout moments like Gene Roddenberry's Star Trek, or like the Twilight Zone, or like shows like these that sort of like ex like strive for a little bit more statement and art um and substance uh we're still confined to these episodic storytelling formats that required them to keep things on a certain level of simplicity mm -hmm. um but now we exist in a time where especially because of things like streaming and um and and though and like the internet that serial storytelling um has really been like ex we're exploring that now uh greatly and there have always been like shows that were serials like typically like some type of uh actually you know what i think you know what i think is one of the big steps forward is the idea uh, is the realization of stories the best stories also having endings mm. Mm -hmm. because for a lot of television um a lot of shows didn't get endings mm. they they would just go until they were considered no longer profitable to produce and then they get canceled mm -hmm. um often with before they know they were going to get canceled um and so now that we've come to this idea of things having endings 
we think of them as more com telling more complete stories. And I think that's really sort of stepped things up. Like, like Breaking Bad is, is a show that is good from beginning to end. Mm -hmm. um, and I think part of that is because at a certain point in their development, they realized it had to have an ending. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, it's interesting, too, that you talk about like television shows and endings, but like there are some shows that have controversial endings as well. Yeah. Like, I think, what was it, Dynasty? Like, who shot JR? Like, I never watched the old Dynasty or I, anything like that. Um, there are a lot of TV shows that, that sort of ended controversially. Like, it wasn't um, nice and neat, mm -hmm. you know? I think the thing with Breaking Bad was that it, it ended nice and neat. And that was actually one of my gripes with El Camino because like, I thought it was really great that last scene of Jesse Pinkman sort of driving the car out and breaking it and like, you know, getting out. I thought that that was just beautiful. It was poetic. It was like one of the, it was like, just sorry, spoiler alerts for anybody who hasn't watched Breaking <laughs> Bad. Um, like I felt like it was just fitting and it was like, um, a nice end of the story but then they came out with el camino and i watched it i don't know if you've seen it i've seen it it's it, it was cool it was well done um and it, and it was kind of like okay yeah he did get out of there but how did he get out get out and they sort of addressed that uh but like sorry spoiler alert for breaking bad walter white dying in his laboratory at the end or not in his laboratory but in a laboratory at the end and everything that sort of happened there everything was just you didn't know it was going to tie up that way, but it, but it did. It tied up in a very, very nice and, and satisfactory way. Uh, whereas, I, and I know, I don't think you've seen this show, The Sopranos mm -hmm. um, sort of ended controversially. Yeah, um, I've heard that. I, and I don't know how it ended. I've heard, I've heard what the ending is. It's, I, it's I, controversial. It's, it's a good TV show. It's, it's it, actually, I, it, I want to say it's a good TV. It's a great TV show. Um, I started watching that. I was watching it like in real time, like when it started coming out. Um, the writing's good. The acting is fan ph phenomenal. And like everything about it is like, there were deliberate choices with like music and with color and style and everything is very, very, uh, talk about a show where like the writer had a vision for it and kept going with it. Uh, and got the directors on board and everything seemed to work really well. But the way that it ended um, was just very upsetting to a lot of people. Um, I don't want to, I don't want to ruin it for you if you haven't seen it, but if you I, I've heard what the ending is. Yeah. Um, um, I know he like goes into a diner and he sits down and it cuts to black. And right. And so the there's that I've also heard the theory that the person coming in the door before it cuts to black is someone who shoots him in the back of the head. Mm -hmm. yeah and that's i mean it it could be but i also think that like you know i remember talking to my my dad about it afterwards and he loved the ending because he was like oh you don't you don't know what happened like the guy could have shot him in the back of the head but could not have you know and thematically the way that the, the that the that the the tv series ends versus where it began the TV series was about a guy, a, a, a guy who had a family who happened to be in the mob. Like it wasn't really about the mafia. 
it was, I mean, there were storylines and things like that that were about the relationships that he had with his other family, but really it was about this guy and his family and his relationship with his wife and his kids. And, you know, during the first few seasons, his mother. Um, And then at the end of the show, at the end, the ending scene is him and his family all being together. And what the, one of the first scenes is uh, there is a, it's sort of symbolic. First episode, the pilot episode, there was this family of ducks that was living outside in their pool. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, the ducks, I think he felt a connection to because he, he, saw, he saw his family in the ducks. And there was an episode where the ducks sort of flew away and it made him depressed, <laughs> sort of affected his mood. But then at the end of the, of the show, all of his family was together. So all of the ducks were back in the nest. So like, I think thematically it, it made sense to end it there. And you don't know what happened after it cut to black because the guy's life was always risky. Yeah, he was a mob boss. He, his somebody could have walked in and yeah, popped him in the back of the head. That, that was a risk that he was living with. And that was something that was also talked about, especially in the last season. He was constantly living with this risk, but ultimately at the end of the day, the show was really about a man and his family. And then I've heard that like, really, it was just the, the, the audience just didn't get to see any more of what happened. So the cut to black was actually not the character being whacked, but the audience being whacked. <laughs> all right so, but um no it like other tv shows that also have great I, did you watch dexter i i i watched a portion of dexter okay um i watched up until um season five and season it got five, weird after that point. like season five like started and i like immediately was like why would you do that uh like i thought season four with john lithgow was great oh that was the best season and like but like the way it ended and then the way that season five picked up is just like like the the way that he like implicates himself even though he's totally innocent of that specific murder at the beginning of the season like just started to lose me immediately yeah. I was like, come on, man. I know you're in shock and you actually cared about this person, but come on. Yeah. Like, for once, you're innocent and this is the one where you're going to fuck it all up. Yeah. Yep. And uh, yeah, 100%. And I, I, I think what ended up happening is the, the studio wanted, or the producers wanted to do more. They wanted to make more money, so they extended out the story. Um, yeah, but there's a new series, Dexter New Blood. I've, I've watched a few, I've watched a few episodes of it. And like the first four episodes, episodes sort of have, have caught my interest and I'm trying to find ways to watch it. Cause I was watching it at my parents' house when I was at, in Ohio and they had the, they were able to get it through whatever streaming service, but I don't have, uh, I don't have access to it. So I'm trying to find another way to get to it. I think it's on... It's on Showtime. Yeah, they were. Yeah, they were both previously on Showtime. Yeah, and I don't have, Showtime, show, but like the original Dexter series is on Prime. It's on Prime Video, mm-hmm. but New Blood is not on Prime Video. Yeah, I, I believe Showtime has a deal with Hulu. 
Um, yeah, yeah. I think you need Hulu Premium to get it. Yeah, you need you need you need uh, you need to pay extra to specifically get the Showtime stuff. Yeah, the same way you do with like the other people they have deals with. Like Stars right. is also available for Hulu. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. HBO used to be like that, which actually is how I first got hooked up with HBO Max. Uh, which, generally speaking, I actually really like as a streaming service. Well, if you have HBO Max, you can watch The Sopranos. Yeah, no, I should I should give it a chance. Uh, <laughs> I, I and I don't know how you feel about mob mafia stories. And um, all that. I mean, I've enjoyed some mob stuff. I'm not like uh, I'm not like a hardcore mob person. Yeah. Like um, the highlight, like my, like the like I I I think the godfather's a great movie um uh let's see here uh what's some other mob movies i've seen i know I've, i saw one of the ones with ray liotta i know that goodfellas uh maybe it might mm -hmm. wait i think it was casino because uh ray liotta wasn't in casino what no. what's the one where he gets taken out to like a field and, and whacked that was joe pesci uh but that, that is in casino yeah okay i'm getting yeah i'm just getting confused oh wait i know what it is i've seen the shots i've seen scenes from goodfellas where it's ray Liotta, and i'm just getting them mixed up well, there. joe pesci was also in goodfellas too that yeah um <laughs> scorsese <laughs> scorsese yeah yeah um yeah godfather one and two are good um uh donnie brosco speaking of uh johnny depp donnie brosco is actually a good movie uh, it's a good mob movie with Al Pacino. Um, oh, have you ever seen uh, uh, "Get the I uh, Kill the Irishman"? Kill the Irishman, yeah, yeah. It was it was fine. I enjoyed it. It was just it was long. Um, it was long, <laughs> I, but like Jimmy Hoffa, like that whole part of American history is is just very fascinating to me. I I liked I liked "Kill the Irishman." Uh, I don't know. It's it felt maybe it felt more personal because it was about like this area. That Wait I a second. In. Are you talking about? Was that the one with Al Pacino? No, Al no. Pacino? Kill the Irishman is. Uh, oh, was that the one about Jimmy Green? Yes. From Cleveland. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, yeah. I do. I do remember seeing that movie, and I did enjoy that. Yeah. Yeah. No. That I liked. I liked that one a lot. It was interesting to me to see like the connection between like this like union organizer and like like the disruption of the mobs connection from the coasts mm. like that was a very interesting story to me although mm -hmm. like when i looked it up it turned out like they they like made it less crazy than real life mm. like in real life jimmy green would like wit like he had his office was all green and he would like wear green to the office mm -hmm. and like in real life his wife and kids didn't try to leave him in mm. real life, that was his idea to get them safe. But in the movie, they like get upset with him for his lifestyle and then leave. Mm. But in real life, it's like no, he had to force them to go live somewhere safer. And I think the other issue, I, I, one of the issues I had with that movie is they shot it in Detroit, and you could <laughs> you could you could tell, you know, that it wasn't Cleveland. And I was just like, at least give me some sort of shots that look like you shot it in Cleveland. <laughs> That's fair. Although, to be fair, uh, a lot of parts of it also took place. Some of it was supposed to take place in Youngstown, also. Uh, yeah, I know. And and actually, um, you know, my family's from Youngstown, and um, 
uh, local mob characters in Youngstown, like we kind of knew, like actually the guy who supposedly uh, like finally killed Jimmy Green with the car bomb was, I think it was um, Lenny Strollo. Was it Strollo or was it Naples? I don't know. There's a couple of figures in Youngstown, like mafia figures that... um, uh, they think that they, they were the one that they had the finger, their finger on the trigger when Jimmy Green was killed. Mm-hmm. So yeah, man, Youngstown was uh, Youngstown is an interesting, interesting oh, yeah. place. Yeah. yeah. All right. Uh, well, well, I think I need to eat something. So let's. All right, man. This is this is a good chat, man. It was like it has been. It's, it has been uh, an epic, uh, but uh, it was good talking to you. Do uh, you have any final thoughts you want to say about uh, about acting or any of the other topics we've discussed today? Um, mm, well, I think we covered <laughs> everything. I just, okay. you know, just um, just for for your viewers, people who are listening out there, when you when you watch a, a film or a play or anything like that, and you watch an actor and Maybe they're just not cutting it for whatever reason. Give them a little bit of grace, <laughs> and 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 really try and like okay, let's look at stop looking at things in terms of good or bad, and just look at it as a um, like you were talking about before. What worked? What doesn't work? You know, etc. And 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 blame the director. Really, it's the director's <laughs> fault. <laughs> You heard that, directors? We're coming. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> but uh, yeah, yeah, man. That's that's about it. All right. And also, I was going to say something about Hollywood hype. You just realize that a lot of you know actors. The other thing is actors are a lot of them are hardworking people that you know they're just trying to get the next job. They're not like a lot of these celebrities that you see on television or anything like that, they're hardworking people and they uh, genuinely are good people for the most part. Some of them aren't, uh, but you know, uh, not, not all actors are like the big Hollywood personalities. Mm-hmm. And just because you haven't seen an actor in something big doesn't mean that they aren't, good or aren't doing the right thing or you know haven't made it yet i you know i saw a meme the other day that was like uh someone posted this on facebook it was something like uh like play programs be like and then like it just like lists like the actors credits as like all these very like high profile stage shows and then it says like corpse online or in film (laughs) <laughs> yeah you know whatever you, you got to take work sometimes you yeah. know and it, it's just the value of the part you know whatever you know yeah. as long as as long as actors are happy in doing what they're doing and you're not causing harm to other people do what you got to do man do what you got to do absolutely all right well, well thank you so much for being on my program dean kutris anytime ruben ryan do you have I, I am I am I am happy to be a part of this. I, I I really enjoy listening to your podcast and 
I, I've mentioned this to you before, but I'll say it for your listeners. I, you know, just listening to it, I sort of, aside from getting highly entertained and laughing out loud while I'm listening to you at work, um, I, I, I do sort of, it, it has sort of challenged me to question my beliefs about things and sort of open my mind to like different perspectives about things. So like, I have learned a lot from, from, from watching your, your, or listening to your, uh, to your podcast. So thank you. Well, I, I am, I am, I am touched and moved by those statements. I thank you so much for the, for your kind words. All right. Well, thank you. Uh, thank you everyone for listening, uh, whenever you're listening. And, uh, so yeah, let's uh, let's say goodbye to the listeners. Have have a good day, listeners. Via con Diaz. Indeed. So how did your audition go, good chap? Well, I think it was going okay until I uh, until I yanked out the nose hairs and my nose started bleeding all over the place. But uh, you know, they said there was a heap the hemophiliac in the in the in the in the characters, so. Maybe I'll get a callback for that. Well, you never know where it's going to take you.